Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking cold Swedish winter, we're talking Daniel Craig in little black briefs, and we're talking Don't Call Her Snoozy Mara Anymore. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking men who hate women. And by that I mean the girl with the dragon tattoo. Uh, nicely done, nicely done. Yes, uh, um, can you hear my trepidation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so folks, let's do a couple things right off the top here. First of all, this movie has a shit ton of sexual assault in it, and it's very graphic, so content mm. warning for that. And also, the cat does die, so content warning for animal abuse. I forgot about the cat, I and mean, this is bad, but like, I... I don't know about for you, and for me, it's never really seeing the corpse of an animal that bothers me. Like, I can be fine as long as it's already dead. It's okay. It's when I see an animal suffering that I, 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 like, I, I have to check out. I mean, I'm normally okay, but this cat is cut up into fucking pieces, and I was not... I either didn't remember it or I completely blocked it out. I definitely didn't remember it, but the fact that it's barely recognizable as a cat like mm-hmm. made it easier for me to watch. So I know that's really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, it's a stuffed animal that's been cut into pieces. Uh, but yes, I mean, of course, yeah. In case you missed the global phenomenon that was this book back in 07-ish, uh, whatever, the 2000s, and the Swedish trilogy from 09, 10, 11, and then mm-hmm. this film... Uh, yes, this movie is a lot. Right. Yeah. And it's celebrating its 10th anniversary, which is part of the reason <sighs> why we're doing that. it. <laughs> and also because this is not one, but two motherfucking Christmas horror movies, because we begin at Christmas and we end at Christmas. We do. I mean, wasn't the tagline for this like the feel bad movie of the year or something? Mm-hmm. Yep. Which... It's funny, though, because it does, like, the protracted uh, finale of this movie, the last 20 minutes, it Mm -hmm. it kind of is, I mean, it it gives you a happy-ish ending. I mean, unfortunately, one that was leading into sequels that we never got, but it does Mm -hmm. end positively for most people. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, obviously it's a fun marketing gimmick for people to say, hey, this is a really dark film. We happen to be releasing it at Christmas. But I think you could argue that the character who most deserves a happy ending is the one who throws a leather jacket into a dumpster and ends up alone. Well, and that that is the thing, right, though, because obviously there were plans to continue this and adapt Mm -hmm. the other two books in this trilogy. I mean... Honestly, I was pouring through this DVD today because, uh, I mean, there's extra features at the wazoo. Mm-hmm. And everything, like, they'll mention something and be like, oh, yeah, like, and specifically in regards to the rape scene and how, like, we we need to see this um, and how it feeds into Lisbeth in the next two films. And they right. keep saying two films as yeah. if they already exist. And that's 
unfortunately didn't happen. Yeah, and it's it's almost hilarious how far they went into the development of the second oh, book yeah. to film adaptation. And really, that is the one that pays off Lizbeth's backstory. Like we get a very brief mention in here at one point around the consensual sex scene. Mm-hmm. I'm using air quotes because you could also deem it unconsensual, but we'll get there. Yeah. And there's a moment, I think, after in the kind of pillow talk where Elizabeth mentions, oh, yeah, the reason that I'm a ward of the state is because I tried to burn my father. And it's like, oh, we'll get there with the girl who played with fire. But again, it's just set up. And as a result, there's so many parts of this film that feel unfinished because it's a franchise film, right? Like, this is the first entry. Oh, shit, we didn't make the last two. You know, because I I have not seen this movie since I saw it in theaters, you know, Christmas Mm -hmm. weekend 2011. And so I remember being obviously irked because I was like, fuck, like, like, I Mm want to see these next two movies. And I was worried rewatching it now, you know, 10 years distance, that I was going to feel the same way. And honestly, I liked it more this time. And the, mm-hmm. those, and maybe it's because I haven't just read the books. Because when I saw this movie, like, I had just read the books. I had gone oh. through the entire, well, I'm sorry, two of the three Swedish films. Because I've still never seen The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. And I, I, I was primed to be like, oh, yeah, I'm looking for these, these setups pieces for the next Mm -hmm. two books uh, for the next two films and i didn't have that this time right and while i would love to delve more into lisbeth's backstory and see more of mara in this role Mm -hmm. i kind of appreciated the simplicity well i'm sorry i'm I'm using simplicity (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry let me check my watch (laughs) but no but like i mean it didn't feel as much like a franchise starter on a rewatch right as it did 10 years ago but i'm just wondering if maybe it's my distance from the source material now that is why i think that Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've got some funny stories to share. This was the first time seeing the end of the film for me, but I knew what to expect because I had (laughs) seen the Swedish film. Funny story to go with that one as well. (laughs) Well, okay. So why don't we do this? Because we always look, what is your connection to the film? Mm -hmm. As I said, this is a global phenomenon. So how did you come across this IP? Let's not even say this film, but let's start with the books. Okay, so I have read the first three books. They all coalesce in my memory. I remember very little about what distinguishes one from the other. They were very much like beach vacation reads for me. I I vividly remember reading The Girl Who Played With Fire on a beach somewhere because these were... (laughs) you know, pulpy airport books that you would get because they are super fast reads. Okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to stop you right there. And the only reason I'm going to stop you is because... So I I read these two because it was the biggest thing. Like, you could not escape these books. No. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is upwards of 700 pages. Mm Mm-hmm. And A, um, the first page includes a family tree that I swear to God I had to reference (laughs) more than any other Game of Thrones book. (laughs) Thank God for that family tree. Trying to do the fucking plot summary for this movie Mm -hmm. so listeners could follow along was like, I'm just not going to talk about that character. I can't. No, but but I distinctly remember having a very difficult time getting into this book. Okay. Until Mikhail and Lisbeth meet because so much of the first, maybe third, maybe third of this book Mm -hmm. is, is like 
techno jargon and family tree lineage. <laughs> oh, this is hackers in the 2000s. Like, I'm doing my hacky stuff. I'm doing my millennium investigative journalism stuff. And like my mom had read it and I was like, what? Like, wh- why are people into this? And of course, like, right. by the time, like once it hooks you, like it does hook oh, you. Yeah. Like, you cannot stop reading. But yeah. I remember the barrier to entry was just like getting past the first start of this book was a real hurdle for me. Well, it is tricky, right? Because it's a story about two very distinct people, and they don't come together until well into the book. So there's a bunch Mm -hmm. of times where you're either maybe more invested in Mikhail's or you're more invested in Lisbeth. And sometimes those other parts can feel like a slog or you don't really understand how the story's going to come together. Yeah. Yeah. So you continue your story. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, settle in. This is going to be a long fucking episode. Read the books, liked the books, uh, watched the first two Swedish films, mm-hmm. Introduction to Numi Rapace, uh, really enjoyed her. Uh, so my fun story with the Swedish version, I ended up seeing it at like the discount movie theater. This is back when I lived in <gasps> Ottawa. Uh-huh. And so the moment where Mikhail gets kidnapped and he is being tortured, the print broke oh because this no. was still back when we were doing 35 <laughs> millimeter yeah so the print breaks and we all wait and then they repair it and then they start to play it again and then it breaks and then they do it again and then it breaks a third time but it doesn't just break they don't catch it and the film literally burns <laughs> so i didn't really get a sense of how that finished i think i rented it when it became available on dvd after the fact so i did know that oh okay it's like she gets him he dies and there's like a big ending where his reputation gets repaired cool mm-hmm. fast forward to the 2011 version the american one I'm very excited because it's fincher it looks great it's moody it does look distinct enough that i care to check out the story again yeah so i'm watching it in a downtown mall theater Kids, Mm -hmm. do you remember when movie theaters were located in malls? I think we still have one here in Austin, actually, but uh, yes. Okay, (laughs) go and support them because those things close. Oh, no. (sighs) Okay, so we get all the way to the end of the film. Almost the exact same part. Daniel Craig is all hoisted (laughs) up. I think I saw the part where Rooney Morrow hits Stellan Skarsgård in the face and then he runs out. And then the movie theater lights come on and the manager comes in and says, folks, we need you to evacuate. There's been a bomb threat. What? (laughs) So it's not funny, but like in hindsight. (laughs) It was funny because there was no bombs, but they ended up giving us vouchers because they said, "Okay, well, we can't restart the film because we need to search the building. (laughs) But well, well, I don't know if it was digital or 35 millimeter, but it's also really hard to like go back to a spot like on a projector reel. Right. So wait, so, but also it's because you got to go re. So to go see it again, you have to sit mm-hmm. through another uh, two hours. <laughs> yep, and that's why I never finish it because I was just like, no, I know wait. how it ends technically because I've read the book and I've seen the first Swedish film. Yeah. I don't want to go and sit in the theater for two hours again. I did enjoy it, but I didn't like it that much. So yeah, when we get to the part where it's like, like I knew that Jolie Richardson is Harriet, yeah, yeah, yeah. but 
I had never seen it before. The rewatch for this podcast. Is that why we're covering it besides the 10 year anniversary? So you can finally finish the spying movie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think also because it seemed like an unorthodox choice and I was excited to revisit it. Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, I feel like we are, we owe Rooney Mara some praise because we did tear into her pretty hard in our Nightmare on Elm Street episode. Oh my God. Yes. My story is not as, I don't really have a story to be honest, but just my overall thoughts. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. it was, I remember reading my entertainment weekly when i still got those print um when it was still weekly (laughs) (laughs) and uh i just remember because i I saw the girl with the dragon tattoo it was all over like you know best of the year and for some reason i thought it was about some kidnapped girl which i Mm. guess technically i was i mean it's yeah, you're not incorrect. <laughs> but but I thought the girl who was kidnapped was the one with the dragon tattoo. And so ah. little, and so I picked it up and I was like, all right. Like, and my mom read it and I was like, oh, like, you know, like she does, like, she, she likes to read this kind of books too. And so I was like, okay, let me try this. Um, I, mm-hmm. As I said, I had trouble getting into it, but I really liked it. I love the girl who played with fire. I think that's my favorite book in the trilogy. Um, yeah, it's the hardest one to read, but I also think that it's the best story. I agree. The girl with who kicked the hornet's nest. I I don't really remember much about it except for the fact that Lizbeth is like out of commission for about eighty percent of that novel. Well, yeah, because folks who've read the second book know <laughs> she yes. kind of gets the shit beaten out of her. She does, and so I saw the first one because it had a very limited release. I'm sorry, I saw the Swedish film it had a very limited right. release. Um, so I saw it probably. I rented it from Blockbuster when I worked there. And the second one was playing at a rinky-dink, like, low-budget, low-budget? Like, an independent cinema that plays, okay. like, you know, the, the the movies that get, like, 100 theaters in the United States. Like, this right. theater gets those movies. Well, it's still a foreign film. Like, the fact yes. that we even got these films in North America was kind of impressive. Exactly. And unfortunately, I didn't think that the Girl Who Played With Fire movie was that great. I mean, I thought it paled in comparison to the book, and I thought Mm -hmm. it was a weaker adaptation compared to the first movie. Yeah. I never saw The Girl Kick the Hornet's Nest. Um, I will say, though, and I I don't know, maybe I guess you haven't seen these either, but you know that they... They turned it into like a mini series in, in Sweden. Okay. Really? So here's the thing. I just ordered the Blu-ray because I, I found this out and I was like, how did I not know this? So basically there are extended versions of all of these movies. They're all like two and a half hours long. Oh, wait, I did know that. Yes. Yes. yes because we got the movie version and they got like the full yes. adaptation. Okay. Yes. yes. So what they did was, so before, before the second and third movies came out, because I think they shot them all like in, in, in a row. Hmm. They have three-hour extended versions of each film, so they Whoa. aired them as a miniseries, as six 90-minute episodes. And hmm. you can find the Blu-ray. It's available. It's a U.S. or North American Blu-ray release like of the extended cut, which just has these six 90-minute episodes. So each film does have like a... That has two parts, basically. Right. So I have not seen that, and I'm actually kind of excited to dive into them because I haven't seen the Swedish one since right. I saw them. Interesting. Okay, well, if you happen to tackle those anytime in the near future, do report back because I feel like people would be very interested to know, is it better? Are they just more drawn out? Are they just more faithful to the books and so on? Well, unfortunately, I have no plan to reread the books, but (laughs) I couldn't really tell you, but we'll see. Um, Anyway, saw this one, really liked it. I did see the... um, Ending. Oh my god! <laughs> I did see the end. No, but I'm telling you the sequel. The sequel that came out like three years ago. Oh um, yeah, the uh, the girl in the spider's web. Yeah, that's it with Claire Foy, right? Yes, and someone I don't know playing Mikhail. Um, but uh-huh. that was um from the Evil Dead director Fede Alvarez. And yes. 
I heard not good things. It is not bad. It is just so bland and forgettable. Like any style that Fede Alvarez exhibited in Evil Dead or Don't Breathe, I don't mm-hmm. think it's there in Girl Kick the Spider. God damn it. The Girl in the Spider's Spider. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so disappointing because like if folks go back and listen to our audio commentary for Don't Breathe on the Patreon, you will just hear us gush for pretty much 90 minutes straight about how that film is oozing style and then like when we talked about don't breed too on the patreon we mm-hmm. totally lamented the loss of his vision so right. it's disappointing to think of an alvarez film that doesn't even feel like him because that's really the thing that he brings to the table i mean and i do wonder if it's a source material issue too because those the the, yeah. the, the after the third book you know it wasn't the original author it was someone else writing them but yeah i and they spoiled like one of the big twists in the trailer and blah, 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 whatever it's you it, you won't like be wasting your time watching it. It's just very much a, ooh, I wish Fincher was here type thing. <laughs> well, in that case, let's focus let's on back. the one that we've got <laughs> Fincher for. Which also, Trace, how funny is it that we begin and end our year with a Fincher film? I, okay, I was thinking that exact same thing because I was going through Fincher's filmography because, and I, this won't take long, but I remember when Gone Girl came out and, mm-hmm. you know, it got really good reviews, but there were some people that were like, oh, he's just going through the motions adapting this book. And for some reason, I had it in my head that, like, that was his first like book adaptation i don't know why i had it in my head also that he wrote all of his screenplays which um he doesn't by the way (laughs) no he does not (laughs) but like he's made 11 films and five of them are based on books Mm -hmm. one of them benjamin button is based on a short story right and the rest are all original oh i'm sorry alien 3 is a sequel but then Mm -hmm. the rest are original (laughs) okay so i was just like oh i don't know why i thought that but he, he's got a weird filmography. I I do think that there's potential for us to cover both Gone Girl as well as Zodiac on the pod one day. I agree. Um, Zodiac is one of my husband's favorite. Like, he'll put it on at bed sometimes, this three-hour oh, fucking movie, wow. <laughs> and just watch Zodiac. <laughs> I, I love Zodiac. Like, I mean, I don't really think I know anyone who doesn't like it, but that mm-hmm. film is just, oh, Modern I, classic. I, that film has one of the scariest scenes ever put to film. And it yes, is that, you talked about it before. Move on. Okay, move on. Okay, move on. <laughs> All right, so back into this film. So, okay. So the success of Stieg Larsson's novel obviously created Hollywood interest in adapting the book. Like, when you have a phenomenon like this, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to compare it to Harry Potter or, like, The Hunger Games. I mean, obviously, it's not YA or children's books, but, like... It was kind of that level of like, oh, you haven't read The Girl with the Dragon's Tattoo type thing? Oh, yeah. Just absolute monster. And like, there were people who I had never seen read before who read these books. And again, given the subject matter of these books, it is so shocking to me. But I think that's something that's going to be talked about, too. So, right. So in 2009, um, you know, Sony's Michael Linton and Amy Pascal pursued the idea of developing a quote-unquote American version unrelated to the Swedish film adaptation that was released that exact same year. Yeah. By December of 2009, two major developments occurred for the project. Um, one, Stephen, I'm going to say Zalian, uh, who had recently completed the script for Moneyball. And Zalian, because uh, he had done a bunch of other films. I mean, he's he got to start doing this chess movie called Searching for Bobby Fischer, which is a <laughs> Easter egg in this movie. But mm-hmm. he also wrote Schindler's List, Hannibal. He adapted Hannibal. Oh, hmm. Um, he also wrote The Irishman. So what you're saying is he's associated with mostly quality films. For the most part, yes. And I'll go to bat for Hannibal, because the issue with that is the source material, not the movie. <laughs> this is true, yes. <laughs> so he becomes the screenwriter, while producer Scott Rudin finalized a partnership allocating full copyrights to Sony. 
Azalian, who was unfamiliar with the novel, got a copy from Rudin, and after reading the book, he said he did no research on the subject. He just wanted the book and wanted to go from there. Right. Okay. Fincher, who was requested with partner Sean Chaffin by Sony executives to read the novel, was astounded not only by the series' size, but also its success. One of the producers of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, we may know her name as the, uh, from connected to Star Wars, by the way. Oh, I connect her to Terminator, but yes. There you go. After giving some details of the plot, she asked David Fincher again to read the book, and he goes, Kat, nobody is going to make this movie. You're just setting us up to be miserable again. And I guess because <laughs> he said miserable because of Benjamin Button? <laughs> I guess? I don't okay. know. That's a movie I've seen once, and I will never... I, I like it, but like I have no desire to revisit it. Never seen it. It's long. It's three hours. <laughs> I mean, so is this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Two hours and 37 minutes. Think it, it is eight minutes shorter than the latest James Bond movie. Look, I'm just saying between this and then our coverage of Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley oh on God. the Patreon this month, we are watching really long movies for the podcast in December. I'm not used to it. And honestly, for holiday time, it's weird. So everyone, listeners, thank you for coming with us on this journey. <laughs> Pack your bags, say goodbye to your loved ones, yeah. and park your ass on the TV because we're here <laughs> all night. So as they began to read, uh, they both noticed that it had a tendency to take readers on a lot of side trips from yeah. Detailed, detailed explanations of surveillance techniques mm -hmm. to angry attacks on corrupt Swedish industrialists. Fincher would go on to say that the ballistic ripping yarn thriller aspect of it is kind of a red herring in a weird way because... The thing is, is that it throws Salander and Blomqvist together, but it's their relationship that you keep coming back to. So the mystery itself is like, that pulls you in, but it's not why you stay there. And I mean, again, the mystery is pseudo, well, kind of solved, like, like 30 minutes before the movie ends. Right. It's an interesting perspective, because I don't entirely disagree with him, but I also feel like the case is so complicated mm -hmm. that you really do get invested in all of the ins and outs of it. Like, this is a full-on procedural. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, will, I, again, I will say, like, for this rewatch, I was way more invested in the mystery itself mm -hmm. than I was. I mean, again, one Stellan Skarsgård blows up, it's kind of like, cool, wrapping up oh yeah right we have to do vinerstrom which i mm -hmm. wonder i wonder if they had only planned for this to be one film yeah if we would even bother exactly if that would have been jettisoned i think so and honestly you can feel the pacing fall off a cliff at that point so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well and so he's like yeah i was just wondering what 350 pages of this 700 page tome zalian was going to get rid of i love how fitcher just sounds like such a dick <laughs> I mean, I, I would be so intimidated by Fincher. Like, I've seen people talk about him, and they're like, yeah, he's he's a great guy, but he knows what he wants. I think, yeah. honestly, it was with Gone Girl reading an interview with Carrie Coon, because it was, like, her first, like, big, big gig mm -hmm. on that movie, and she was just like, I was not used to his directing style, and he is oh. very, let's say, meticulous. Right. Yeah, he feels like one of the old school, like, he could be in the same league as Kubrick in terms of, you will mm -hmm. do it the way I tell you, and we will do it until it is perfect. Yes, and I will say that, that I watched a lot of his interviews, like, on, on this Blu-ray, and he seems very nice and personable, but again, watching mm -hmm. someone be interviewed versus watching a director direct is probably right. very different. Yeah, the professionalism comes through regardless. Mm -hmm. But um, because Zalian was already like pretty much halfway through the screenplay at that point, uh, Fincher opted to back out and let him just do his thing and then just deal with the final product later. Hmm. Okay, seems smart. 
Yeah. Um, but I will say that something that came up a lot was, you know, why do people like this tale that is filled with, as you said at the top of the episode, like really graphic scenes of sexual assault? And hmm. Fincher thinks that he thinks people are perverts and they secretly want to read <laughs> things like this and are just too afraid to openly admit it. Uh, I mean, we're not talking about David Cronenberg's crash here. Like, <laughs> there's one thing between being turned on by kinky sex or sex in general, and there's quite another to be like, oh, let's talk about sexualized violence. Like, I'm not attracted to that kind of stuff. That's not why I come back to this story, personally. No, but I mean, I don't well, I don't want to compare it to this, but you know, like how we talk about all the times as horror fans, we're looking for, like, that next rush. Like, the next thing right. that's going to be really scary or really gory or whatever. And I, I, I don't mm. want to say that I'm looking for sexual assault scenes that really disturb me, but it's just one of those things where it's like I'm chasing that high of like upset me movie, like do something to actually upset me, you know? Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let me unpack that before we yep. move any further. Because so folks, we're probably going to eat our feet a couple of times in this episode. Yes. And one of the big things that we want to recognize, particularly around the discourse of rape revenge films, is that there's no proper way to watch them. There's no proper way to make them. Like, no one's experience with sexual assault and sexualized trauma is like there is no general way to do this so some mm -hmm. people are going to watch this movie and not be affected at all some people are going to be like totally fucking triggered and you're not going to be able to handle it and all of those responses are valid and trace and i are going to try to do our best to parse through some of this but we may get some of it wrong or it may not speak to your experience yeah. we are interested in hearing how people respond to the film and particularly the rape scenes and the underlying message about misogyny and sexual assault. I can't promise we're going to get it all right, but we're going to try real hard. Oh, did you write that as a script? Because that was a really good delivery. <laughs> I did not. Oh I my am God. off the cuff. <laughs> I, I, okay, honestly, so I, and I'll keep this in because I think it's important. Like, I mean, part of my trepidation going into this episode was because we haven't, I mean, we've done movies with sexual assault, but we haven't mm -hmm. really, ugh, to my knowledge, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, done rape revenge i mean the closest off the top of my head and now i'm gonna flub it is I know. i'm thinking of our discussion with nay beavers on showgirls around mm. the sexual assault in that film which is very graphic and seems to come out of nowhere but it is a very different kind of film and film watching experience yeah yeah that's true so i mean nevertheless we're gonna do our best so <laughs> oh and promising young woman but we had a lot of female critics that we drew from for that Patreon episode. Right. And this will be coming from an explicitly male POV in this episode. Oh, in case you couldn't tell, we don't have a guest on this episode. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey. Hey, it's been a while since it's just been the two of us. <laughs> Could you imagine if we had a guest waiting in the wings? <laughs> you motherfuckers let me in um but no and i didn't do a ton of research into like uh sweden's like their gender roles but again something that came up a lot on this blu-ray was that the gender is treated very differently in sweden like and, and the the simplistic explanation they gave was like this isn't a place where men hold open doors for women like everyone does their own thing it's not like oh woman let me do this for you it's not done like that Okay, so I do have a shocking statistic, and I don't have the actual quote from where Stig Larsson said what drove him to first write the series, but he was responding to the statistics out of Sweden pertaining to sexual assault and rape. So I hit the Wikipedia entry for <laughs> rape in Sweden. So oh, God. 
rip my uh, search history, but I did find this uh, piece. So in 1996, Sweden registered almost three times the average number of rape offenses registered in 35 European countries, although we should acknowledge that this is in part because the country defines rape and the method by which they collate their statistics compared to these other countries is different. But basically, Sweden is the rapiest country in Europe. Oh, okay. Well, so Larson wrote the books in part to shine a light on the fact that there is a lot of this happening, and he wanted it to be a topic of conversation. Well, and I think the character of Lisbeth, I mean, again, something else that's pointed out is like, you know, people are fascinated with the character of Lisbeth, but if you met or saw a Lisbeth in real life, and I'm using you generally here, Mm -hmm. like you wouldn't give her the time of day, you would be like, oh my god, how weird, what a freak. And that's, and again, paraphrasing here, but like, that that's the thing is like, that's part of the reason why this character is the way she is, to also show how a system can abuse someone like this. And Oh, yeah. I mean, she's in a conservatorship here, which of course is, I mean, that's really a buzzword right now, given everything that's like, that's been in the news of Britney Spears over the mm-hmm. past, I mean, really the past 20 years, but people have been paying attention really for the past year. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, I think when we talk about the character of Lisbeth, she's a bit fascinating like the number of people who think oh okay well she is a sexual assault survivor and that's part of Mm -hmm. who she is defined by uh some people focus on her looks and her attitude i saw some people read her as being on the autism spectrum and that's why she has difficulty negotiating interpersonal relationships and i think the truth is somewhere in the middle like larson never actually defines anything about her with regard to how she identifies and the film certainly doesn't either yeah which i i thought about like if they were coding her as autistic as well but again yeah, i don't remember in the book if they ever specify that but it was kind of one of those things where i was like well but lisbeth is very intelligent and i feel like if mm-hmm. she was on the spectrum she would she would be aware but may, or, or or maybe it's like maybe she wouldn't care like what right. people's like like spectrum or tests like maybe she's just like i don't submit to that shit like that's beneath me right. i don't know yeah because she is very anti-authoritative she obviously doesn't trust a lot of government and particularly male figures because of her past and mm-hmm. the circumstances in which she was raised so i mean in some ways, she is very much an enigma that we as an audience can project various kinds of readings onto and i think that that's one of the reasons people find her fascinating but also very empowering yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, so put a pin in that, though, because let's yeah, go back to this. Go script. back to the production. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. So the writing process consumed about six months, including three months creating notes and mm-hmm. analyzing the novel. Of course, given the book's sizable length, he had to delete elements to match Fincher's desired runtime. Even so, Zalian was taking significant departures from the book, which, again, it's been too long since I've read it, but I don't really remember there being that. I, I feel like this is a mostly faithful adaptation with, again, just pieces missing. Yeah, yeah. I think he cut out a lot of the quote-unquote fat, but the principal aspects Mm -hmm. of the story are still very much represented from what I can remember. Yes. And so he, with Fincher, wanted to go deeper into the novel's darker subjects, such as the psychological dissimilarities between rapists and murderers. Mm. He Azalean went on to say a rapist, or at least our rapist, which, again, I don't know which one he's talking about. I'm assuming it's Bjorman, but... 
Oh, hmm. Oh, well, yes. Okay. Yeah. So he says a rapist, or at least our rapist, is about exercising his power over somebody. Yeah. A okay. serial killer is about destruction. They get off on destroying something. It's not about having power over something. It's about eliminating it. So what thrills them, a, a rapist and a, a, a serial killer, is slightly different. But they wanted to expose, of course, the novel's pivotal themes of uh, misogyny, and they wanted to just kind of tackle this movie about violence against women as um, and specific kinds of degradation and how you really can't shy away from that, which is why the sexual assaults are it's so graphic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have a very long conversation about that. I, I believe it. Instead of the typical three act structure, though, they they say reluctantly chose a five act structure, which mm-hmm. Fincher pointed out is very similar to a lot of cop dramas on television. Yeah, I, I saw that quote, too, and I never thought about it. But when you do, it really does connect. Well, and it really makes me wonder if those the, the Swedish miniseries like. Oh, yeah. If it'll be more fit to the. I mean, again, I, it's kind of similar, but like if it fits to the format better on as a TV miniseries like that, but just with higher production values. Right. I did think about that, you know, as we were watching this and I was like, oh, God, it's really quite long. <laughs> I, I, in a good way. Yeah, but yeah, yes, yeah. it's longer than a lot of movies that we're used to covering specifically for the pod. And mm-hmm. I thought, I wonder if this would work better. You know, the that last film didn't do anything for anyone. No. So I can imagine that at some point they will look at this and say, is it time to revamp and reboot this? And if so, should we kick it to a streamer, give them $20 million and say, now you get eight episodes of yeah. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I mean, since Venture had done Mindhunter, maybe he'd be more open to it. Although maybe not because he left mm. that. So <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. Rip Mindhunter. Uh, I never really go too much into casting here, but I think it's important to discuss Rini Mara because honestly, at this point, she really hadn't done much. She had done Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. She had done her, what, two scenes in Fincher's The Social Network. Um, right. Of course, everyone wanted this role. Like the, they said that they got tapes from just housewives that were like, I can let me do this role. I can I can do it. Um, yeah, I think that speaks to the popularity of the book, right? Everyone knew about it. So everybody wanted it because I, I think a lot of people also thought this was a guaranteed slam dunk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was like looking for the new Katniss Everdeen, right? Right, yeah. So nevertheless, I mean, Rooney Mara, who it's so interesting and watching her interview like i mean a to get this out of the way i think she is fantastic in this movie yeah. and i think she yeah, yeah. does deserve all the praise that she oh, has earned absolutely yeah i do wish that, that, that i mean and i i have seen her in roles since nightmare where i'm like okay good like you i like you here but then there are mm-hmm. other times where like i get that that snoozy mara stuff where i'm like oh like, you don't seem very <laughs> interested in the movie you're making here yeah yeah when she is engaged she is super present and she's a great performer and then there's the nightmare on elm streets Yes. And I will because, you know, they wanted Numi Rapace back. They were like, she's yeah. already like, you, you, you're the perfect Lisbeth Salander. Come and do these American films. Which honestly, I'm just like, I can't imagine no. wanting to do that. <laughs> no. Why would you want to do this again? And it, it, listeners, if you have not seen the Swedish films, and this will be the last I mention of it. But I just, I, I think that their interpretations are so distinct from one another like mm-hmm. rapace is a bit more rambunctious and like lively whereas mara goes for the more subdued isolated mm-hmm. almost hermit approach to lisbeth and i think both work really well and neither is better than the other 
Yeah, I find Rapace is maybe more convincing in the violent interactions, but that mm-hmm. could honestly just be because she's quite a bit taller than... Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they filmed this in Stockholm, Sweden uh, in September 2010. They moved to Uppsala in October. And then from Dece- December onward, they're in Zurich. Uh, and, of course, some interiors were done in Hollywood as well. Right. Totally forgot this was filmed in Sweden until I hit play. Oh, my God. This You can feel the cold mm-hmm. in this movie. Oh, I love it. And, again, I think that lends itself to the procedurals, right? When this film was made, it, we didn't have the same kind of obsession with true crime and imported content. But, like, I could totally see this coming out now and all the people who are obsessed with Icelandic procedurals and Nordic mm-hmm. procedurals just gobbling this shit up. Yes. Of course, Fincher recruits Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross to do the score because Mm -hmm. their score for the social network was lauded. It's great. Yeah. (laughs) Would you you love to know that whenever people would not shut up about Trent Reznor doing the soundtrack, I was like, I don't know who that is. Oh, my God. Of course you are. (laughs) And then people would say, oh, he's Nine Inch Nails. And I was like, I mean, I've heard of them. I don't (laughs) I don't know what their songs are. You were like, what's in? I've never heard of Nin. Oh, my God. Honestly, I have totally done that before. <laughs> like you got to, you have to literally spell it out for me, y'all. Oh man, a certain population of our listeners just died. Oh, I know, but you know what? It's fine. Um, so, <laughs> Dragon Tattoo opens in the United States on Tuesday, December twentieth, and mm-hmm. it only made thirteen million over Christmas weekend, which is that Friday through Saturday. Um, right. P.S. P- funnily enough, the number one movie that week was Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, which the villain is the actor Mikhail mm-hmm. Nyqvist, who plays Blomqvist in the Swedish version. Yeah. And it also opened behind Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows, which starred Numi Rapace. Numi Rapace. <laughs> <laughs> uh, both of those films were in their third weekend of release, whereas Dragon wow. Tattoo was in the number one, uh, its first weekend. But it wound up grossing $21 million in domestic revenue over the first week. Well, not, maybe not well below, but definitely mm-hmm. below media expectations. Luckily, it was aided by positive word of mouth. Its commercial performance remained steady in the second week. It made $19 million. So it was a very, very small drop. Right. That's why you release movies over the Christmas break, because Mm -hmm. that's the strongest theater going time of the year. So in some ways, it was actually smart. Like, I imagine there's a lot of people who said, well, why the fuck did they release it around Christmas? Nobody wants to watch a movie like this over the holidays. That's why they did it, because people have more time to go to the theaters. And also, there are a bunch of people who don't have kids and are looking for more adult fare well and it's also i mean like this was going to be an oscar film no matter what like that's right. what they wanted and so even mm-hmm. if it like dips down in like january it's going to pick back up again in february once the nominations come out right although that doesn't really it happen. didn't really happen <laughs> <laughs> which i'm no. also surprised by so it went on a 90 million dollar budget by the way um mm-hmm. it would go on to gross 102.5 million domestically which is a pretty substantial loss yeah yeah and 130 million dollars internationally see and mm, see that's where i think like i'm still surprised we didn't get that sequel because of that international number it could be higher but when you add them up it's not bad so yeah you got your worldwide total of 232 million and mgm one of the studios involved in the production posted a modest loss um they declared they expected the film to gross about 10 percent more than it did Mm mm-hmm 
which when you look at that, you're like, well, that's less. So you lost just under $20 million, which I know $20 million. No, yeah, but I know, still. But, 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 but it's Hollywood. But also, I mean, like the, the DVD and Blu-ray release um, as of 2014, which obviously that was a long time ago, but it had grossed about $22 million in home video sales. There you go. You got your money back. There you go. Um, <laughs> we're looking at an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.6 out of 10 and a 71 out of 100 on Metacritic, a 7.6 out of 10 on Letterboxd, and the most shocking statistic, an A cinema score. Right? So the people who did see it, not as many as they hoped for, but the people who saw it did like it. Yes, and of course, it did get Oscar nominations. It was nominated for five Academy Awards. Best Actress for Mara, and she lost to Meryl Streep for The Iron Lady. Uh, okay. Best, uh, we lost all of these. Uh, we lost Cinematography, Best Sound Editing, and Best Sound Mixing. Hmm. All of them lost to Martin Scorsese's Hugo. Oh, I do not care for that film. I've never seen it, and I remember it was a huge bomb. But like, I went to go look, and I was like, well, was it? I didn't know it was an Oscar movie, mm-hmm. even though it was Scorsese. It was, like, critically, like, acclaimed. Oh, like that yeah. movie, I, I had no idea. <laughs> oh, no. It, I, I'm in the minority when I say I don't like it, but it looks great, and it's yeah. visually, like, it's a splendor. Yeah. But the award it did win was Best Film Editing, and it did beat Hugo mm. in this category. Okay. So... There you go. Hmm. Um, I mean, that's really, I mean, that's all I have. I mean, y'all, there is a <laughs> lot of, 40 minutes there's in. a lot of, I know, 40 minutes. In. <laughs> there's a lot of production information about this movie. And I would implore you, like, go find the Blu-ray or DVD because it is stacked with mm-hmm. features. So if you really want to know about the making of this movie, it has you covered. Right. And we, we are going to talk about one more thing in terms of production when we talk about the credits. Yes, Absolutely. All right. Uh, Before I go into this plot summary, I'm going to apologize to any Swedish or Nordic listeners we may have. I'm going to try. Okay, I'm going to try real hard. I will be there with you with that. I don't like I don't know how to do a Swedish accent. The only one I can do is um, Hedestad. Okay, okay. (laughs) I know that one. (laughs) Hedestad. Yeah. No, it's like Stod. I feel like they say Stod. Oh, my God. I don't know. But we're going to be here all night. It's fine. Okay. Just, you know what? Just go with it and I'm don't even go with it. I'm going to sound confident. I'm not even going to pause. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> okay. So we basically have one scene as a cold open before we get to those titles. So mm-hmm. in the cold open, we are introduced to Henrik Vanger, and he is played by Christopher Plummer. Ah, Christopher Plummer. Yeah. And he gets a framed flower in the mail, and this disturbs him greatly. And then we go into these Bond credits. Okay. Um... I honestly I feel s- stupid because when I oh. first watched this and when I watched it again I was like okay yeah this is just a Bond opening credit um by the way though the creative director is no other than Tim Miller who mm-hmm. would of course go on to direct Deadpool and Terminator Dark Fate oh wow okay interesting interesting but yeah when I was I mean when I was reading about all like the Easter eggs and clues mm-hmm. they were putting in this title sequence I was just like holy shit like yeah. it almost moves too like. Comparing it to a Bond sequence is apt, but Bond sequence is also, like, it's a lot slower. Mm -hmm. Um, Not just the song, but the speed at which things are happening on screen. Yes. This is rapid fire. Well, and the interesting thing is that when you start to dive into this, you realize that they're interweaving imagery from the sequels. Like, there's Mm -hmm. moments in here that capture events that will happen in the second film, so again, they're trying to lay that groundwork. And again, it's it's almost all the more frustrating because we know that we will never get to see that. So this is the closest we'll get to see. Pause it a lot. 
<laughs> I don't know. Sure. It's it's also just like really interesting to look at. I think it's very captivating. It sets the tone well for the film to come. Well, and that's the thing. So, you know, he wanted to um he wanted to develop an abstract narrative to reflect pivotal moments in the novel and of course, as you said, the sequels. His initial ideas were modeled after a keyboard. They were going to do like keyboards uh, as a giant city with massive mm-hmm. fingers pressing down. Um get very cyberpunky. Oh, sure. Um, but Fincher was like, oh, but I want this to be a personal nightmare for Salander, replaying her darkest moments. Right. So uh, that's when we have kind of like um, like this black goo, uh, mm-hmm. which <laughs> I mean, coming off of uh, Prometheus would come out a year after this. Right. <laughs> so um, they rewrote the sequence to have more of a gooey element um, and to have, to, <laughs> I know, I hate that word, but to be a primordial dream ooze that's part of every vignette and again this primordial ooze i'm like god damn it prometheus like just right. steal it <laughs> uh, i mean hey maybe prometheus was i was gonna say ahead of its time after its time i don't know <laughs> i mean numi rapace <laughs> right <laughs> maybe she was in the editing room for this this main title featurette I feel like I'm Charlie Day over with the red string doing the like, it's all connected. Yes. But so, yeah, so they incorporate Zalander's tattoos, like her phoenix and her dragon. Um, mm-hmm. The multiple flower representations signify the biological life cycle, um, as well as Henrik, who, as you said, receives that pressed flower. We have a flower that has black ooze. It blossoms. It dies. It's all very conceptual and abstract. So you can mm-hmm. watch it and probably just make your own interpretations of it, while some of it is very explicit. Yeah. And like, there's a moment where you clearly see it's meant to be uh, Rooney Mara getting her head squeezed and crushed by a man's hands. And it's like, okay. And, got and it. that's the girl who played with fire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, I mean, again, this probably means something to everyone else, but the cover of the song is it's a cover of Led Zeppelin's Immigrant Song. Hmm. Um, and the vocals are from Yeah, Yeah, Yes, Karen O, oh, who um, <laughs> you're going to laugh at me really hard. So I thought the IAS were like an old band, like from the 70s oh or God. 80s. I know. No, no, no. And so the, the Chucky trailer, like it features mm-hmm. the yeah, yeah, heads will roll. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, it must be a cover of the song because yeah, yeah, are like this old band. Um, oh they, they're, they're not. Everyone. No. <laughs> I, I just love how bad you are at music. It kind of astounds me. I can't. I, I y'all. I'm. I don't care. I don't care at all. I'm sorry, but I'm glad. Well, and, you do. and here's the thing: you're really good at film, and that's more important for what we do. And video games. Go listen to our audio commentary on Resident Evil or our episode on Resident Evil Raccoon City on our Patreon. Oh my god, dude would not shut the fuck up. I mean, <laughs> all right, let's. Well, in the game, on. it's like this. <laughs> okay, so. Let's actually start this movie. I have yeah, three pages of plot synopsis to get us through. And so I actually took like a, a, a page of notes. That's interesting. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the opening scenes establish that Swedish journalist Mikael Blomkis, uh, who is played by Daniel Craig, has been sued by CEO of the Wernerstrom. And he's represented also by a man. Warner Strom is a gentleman who is played by Ulf Friedberg. And basically what Blumkiss did was he printed a libelous story in Millennium Magazine. And this is where Blumkiss works with his co-editor and also mistress Erica Berger, who is played by Robin Wright. This is something that I also feel like, because Fincher said he always wanted Robin Wright for this role. And I was just kind of like, really? Interesting. I mean, like, well, because it's kind of a nothing role. Yeah. Unless you get those sequels. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a little bit sad because it is such a 
Adele role in this movie. Like, she just kind of looks sad and tired the whole time. What? Okay, I mean, I, I'm obviously, I think you are too, but we're pro, like, keeping it in Sweden. Like, I think that's fine. Sure. What, because, I mean... F- what accent is she doing? Is what, that what you were about well, to ask? <laughs> Craig isn't doing an accent. No, not really. Half the time he sounds firmly, like, British. Right. Mara is doing an accent, and Wright is doing an accent. So, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, I really don't have a gauge to tell you, like, how good they are. I'm going to assume, because it's Fincher, that they are good accents. Maybe? It's just one of those things where I'm like, huh, I wonder what, like, why, why some people have it and some people don't. Yeah, it is definitely inconsistent across all of the players, and I, I wonder if we also just notice it because the cast is half Swedish and then half mm. international. <laughs> so right. you, we really notice it when we see Rooney Mara doing it compared to, say, Stellan Skarsgård. I mean, I guess I say this, but yeah. So but it, it, does Stellan Skarsgård have an accent to you in this movie? Yes. Really? Oh, I, I, to me, I was like, that's Stellan Skarsgård talking the way he does. <laughs> <laughs> As one does in all those Thor movies. <laughs> Okay, so this is all groundwork just to understand where this character is operating. So he's not in a great place. His reputation has been very badly burned. He's a bit of a laughing stock. Mm-hmm. And then we jump to the other side of the story. So we're going to do a lot of back and forth That's in the first so half. So much. Which we've talked a lot about the length of this movie i will say this flies by for me like i yeah yeah yeah. and i I think that's where the editing oscar really comes into play because while we are doing a lot of back and forth constantly and we our our two protagonists don't meet until what 76 minutes into this movie right i i think that this yeah this this just we're going back and forth constantly scenes that i'm Mm -hmm. like why are these intercut but it works for some reason yeah, I, I agree with that. There's very rarely moments where I'm thinking, oh, well, this is a little bit boring. I'd rather be on the other <laughs> half of the story. I think it's yeah. it's a testimony to both the editing, the direction, but I think also the performances. Like Daniel Craig arguably has a harder role because Blumkiss isn't the most interesting character either. Right. He's just kind of the everyman. He's the giallo investigator of this well, movie. Uh, yes yes and and that's why i mean not saying that i want more scenes with him and robin wright but it's like i do find the sexual politics of their relationship oh very very interesting Mm -hmm. oh i love how progressive it is like hey we're everyone knows that he has a mistress who's also his boss and Mm -hmm. nobody really cares she brings her fucking husband to his christmas party well but that's the thing though i mean what we'll find out is lizbeth is like oh yeah they had an affair it wrecked his marriage it didn't wreck her so they Mm -hmm. just have an arrangement and that's why like when he's like she's like oh you want me to tell my husband that i'm I'm staying at your place tonight and he's like Mm -hmm. yeah and so it's like cool good for y'all yeah guess what Straight people also have open marriages. They can make it work, too. Yes. <laughs> okay, so the other half of the story. So we go to a security company that is headed by Armansky, who uh, is played by Goran Vincent. Oh, my God. I-, I was actually waiting for you to say that name, but I've known him since ER, and I always say yes. Gordon Vishnik. You know what? You're probably much, much closer. <laughs> I-, I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like I I know him so well because I've seen him in so many things. And then I also don't ever want to try to pronounce his name out loud. I literally only know him from ER and Electra. Okay. What do I know him from? Like a billion other things. He shows up in action movies all the time, I feel. That's, you're probably right. He's never the protagonist. No, no. Often the heavier the villain, though. 
Yeah, yeah. So in this case, it's it's very weird to see him in two scenes in this movie. Very weird, yes. <laughs> so he is introducing his best investigator, who is also a little unorthodox. And of course, this is Lizbeth Salander, played by Rooney Mara. And the person that she's being introduced to is Vonger's legal counsel, Dirch Freud. And, or Frode? Dirk Frode. Okay, let me try that again then. <laughs> no, no, I, I only know that because I, I, I heard them say it so many times. I, I debated going back and just listening to all of the introductions <laughs> to try to get it. So, okay, so Dirch Freude? Dirk. Dirk, Dirk Freude. Okay. Froda. Froda. Oh my god. Dirk Froda. Okay. He is played by Stephen Burkhoff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're good. All right, so uh, she did a background check on Womkis for Dirk. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, she uh, did a background check for Dirk. Yes. Um, yes, okay. <laughs> on behalf of Henrik. Yes. And I do love that the first real scene that we see of her where she's getting dialogue and we get to get a sense of who the character is, mm-hmm. is when Dirk asks her, you know, well, what's missing from your report is I don't know how you feel about him. And she's, of course, objective and she doesn't yeah. have an opinion. And then when pressed, she talks about his affair with Erica and she says, sometimes he performs cunnilingus. Not often enough, in my opinion. I totally wrote that line down. Because yes. it's a fucking great line. Men eat out your women. Oh my god, yeah. Get down there. No, I, I, okay. <laughs> this is a drunken habit of mine where I like to like, talk to men. Like, yes, men. you do. Yeah, I know. But like, I, I, I'm always like, whenever men are like, oh, I don't really like to do that. I'm like, that, good luck. Good luck. I mean, oh, okay. So you don't care about the pleasure of your sexual partner? Well, have fun with that. That's when I'm like, well, I counter with, well, have you tried rimming? <laughs> This has been Trace Talks to People Drunkenly at a Party. (laughs) I'm really fun to hang out with, I promise. Uh, Yeah, okay. So I'm skipping a couple of kind of incidental scenes, but basically we jump to a Christmas party that Bumkus is holding with his family, and this is when Dirk calls him and says, I'd like to set up a meeting with Henrik Vonger up north at Hedestad. You know what? That's good. Say that. Okay, we'll go with that. So <laughs> this is an isolated island that is connected to the mainland via a bridge. They are in Stockholm, so they have to, you know, travel a couple of hours north by train. But Blomkis makes the trip because he's really got nothing better to do. And he's also intrigued by this mystery that is proposed. So Henrik mm-hmm. wants help solving the death of his 16-year-old great-niece Harriet, who is played in flashbacks and in pictures by Moa Garpendal. So let's go into the details of this case. So okay. listeners, if you have not watched this movie, we're going to try to do our best to lay out exactly who these people are and what the circumstances are. But it's deliberately confusing. The smartest thing this movie does is, I, I and again, I'm just basing this on my memory of reading that book like 10, mm-hmm. 12 years ago. It does cut out a lot of the family members, which yeah. the downside is that you're lower on suspects. And so mm-hmm. it's pretty obvious who the bad guy is going to be, <laughs> in my yeah. opinion. But but I say that as someone who like had read the book and seen the Swedish film before seeing this movie. Right. So mm. if you're coming into this cold, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong. But yeah. There were a lot more family members in this book. Oh my god, so many interactions where you're just Mm -hmm. like, wait, which side of the family are you from? Because there's Uh, like four different kids and they each had parents. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> there were kids and they had parents. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking there were cousins. They were related. Some of them talked. Some of them yeah. didn't, you know? And and like, which one was a Nazi again? Oh, it's really hard to remember. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I honestly, I, I didn't even know we had heard Gottfried's name before, like, Lisbeth is, like, typing Gottfried in all the murder books. <laughs> no, we'd, we'd heard it a couple times, but... Yeah. Okay, so here is the condensed version of what happened with Harriet. So she disappeared during a family gathering on September 24th, 1966. And this is notable because it's a day of a parade in town. So you would have to cross the bridge to get to it. So she disappeared. She went to this parade. She came back. And then she tried to speak to Henrik before dinner. And he brushed her off because there had been an accident on the bridge. And everybody got very distracted. And in the confusion between that point and dinner, Harriet goes missing. So they call in the police. They do a search of the island. And she is never discovered. And... They assume that she must have been killed by one of the family members on the island because the bridge was closed and also none of the boats were missing. Yep. So that's your mystery. It's well, like, who killed her? Yes. And the killer supposedly has been sending Henrik these pressed flowers right. once a year, every year for the past 40 years. Mm -hmm. So that's how we know it's like, oh, I'm being trolled by the killer. He likes to do this to remind me of who I've lost. Because that's what Harriet used to do for him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Blumkiss is like, cool. Okay, what do you want from me? And the deal is Henrik wants him to come and stay in the cottage on the island, go through all of these years of materials that he that Oof. he has gathered. And in exchange, he will double his salary and he will also give him dirt on Wernerstrom, the guy who blackened his reputation. Because he's also in business with him somehow. I mean, not that it's really important, but like he he is familiar with this man. Yeah, it it it's... When we're getting to the scandal part at the beginning of the film, there's very much a like, oh, he printed libelous material against Wernerstrom and also the Vander Corporation. But mm -hmm. when we finally meet Henrik, he basically just says like, oh, yeah, I, I knew him. I've got some stuff on him that you can use. Yeah, he's a piece of shit. No one likes him. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows, but nobody can prove anything. Uh, what, what, what is that? Um, everybody know, does it. Just nobody talks about it. <laughs> Sex games? <laughs> okay, so let's jump back to Lisbeth. She's still in Stockholm. She's setting up her hacking equipment that she got from a friend of hers. So she is interested based on the background check on Mikhail. She decides, okay, I'm going to look into Wernerstrom myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, at this point, Mikhail has also come back and Erica is complaining that he is abandoning her and that the magazine is going to fold. And it's all stuff where you're thinking, OK, but where's the murder stuff? I want to get back to the murder stuff. Well, but here's the thing. like, he would be a fool to reject this offer, period, because first yeah. of all, he's getting paid double his salary, even if he doesn't find anything. Mm -hmm. He gets quadruple if he does. And that Vennerstrom blackmail stuff. So it's yeah. like uh, it's a win, win, win. I'll go do that shit for you, man. Fuck it. Yeah. I mean, I get it from Erica's perspective because she's the one who still has to stay there with right. her staff, which includes Joel Kinnaman in a blink and you'll miss it scene. I honestly didn't even catch him until I was doing the Wikipedia and he was at the bottom of the cast list. And mm -hmm. I was like, who the fuck is this character? <laughs> <laughs> and folks, if you don't know Joel Kinnaman, I mean, he's in the first season of Altered Carbon. He was on The Killing. He's like a kind of a big to do but at this point he was a big nobody i will tell you right now I mean, and i haven't seen the killing and i haven't seen that other thing you said but like i saw him I, the only thing i've seen him in that he's made an impression where i was like oh my god he's not boring is mm -hmm. the most recent suicide squad movie oh yeah 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 
Yeah, he's solid in that. He's another one of these actors where when he's good, he's quite good. And a lot of the time you think, well, he's pretty to look at. I mean, well, because I saw him in that Predator movie. And I, of course, oh, God, no. Well, he he honestly reminded me of like a Blando Dan Stevens in that movie. Like that, he's just like, oh, like you were almost like Dan Stevens, but like without the charisma. Wait, are you confusing him with Boyd Holbrook? <gasps> yes, I am. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> no, I think that's that's literally testimony to the fact that he looks like interchangeable hot white dude. <laughs> Except <laughs> Boyd Holbrook is way worse. Oh my god, I've probably made that mistake a so lot. many times. Yeah. <laughs> Love okay. that for you. Continue. Joe Kinnaman's out of this movie, I think. I think he has maybe like one more shot later at the very end. Oh, yeah. It's not important. I love that we just spent like three minutes on him. <laughs> not important. So, Mikhail takes the offer, obviously. So, he travels yeah. back up north and he very quickly discovers that his cottage is A, very cold. B, there is no cell reception. And C, he has a very cute stray cat. Don't get too attached. No, sadly. Mm-mm. Okay, so back at Lisbeth, she discovers that her state-appointed guardian, Holger Palmgren, who is played by, oh my god, Bent C.W. Carlson? Okay. He's had a stroke. She takes him to the hospital. Yeah, this is something that, I mean, this is probably the thing that was cut out of this movie the most, because her relationship with him is one of the sweetest parts of the novel. Oh, it's so cute. And yeah, you, I, mean, I don't even think he has a single line in this movie. Well, no, because after the stroke, he basically loses the ability to speak and care for himself. But I think problematically, I mean, you understand that she cares for him, but you don't have any idea what the relationship is. So it just looks like she's visiting an old man and then she gets really upset. Yeah, exactly. It'll become more clear when we meet the new state-appointed guardian. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where the film <laughs> gets interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but first, let's go back to the island. So Mikkel gets uh, all of these boxes of evidence delivered to the cottage, and then he goes to meet with uh, Henrik, who gives him the overview of who lives where. And as we said, we're going to keep this simple. I, I love that they lampshade it, because he's mm-hmm. like, I'm quickly losing track of who's who here. And I was oh like, oh my god, thank god. <laughs> said everyone who read this goddamn book. And is watching this current movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, especially because we're pointing to houses. We don't even have names to go with faces in this. Like, it's just, oh, they live there. Okay, well, who? Who is it? You know what we needed? We needed the HUD map that the Resident Evil movie uses so (laughs) that we can, like, go from house to house around this island in a 3D CGI landscape. (laughs) Yes, but clearly it would have fit in with the visual aesthetic of the film, too. Obviously. Yes. (laughs) So the most important people that we should know are Henrik's reclusive Nazi brother, Harold, who is played by Per Marburg, Mm -hmm. as well as his great nephew, Martin, who is played by Stellan Skarsgård. And Martin is the brother of Harriet, and he now runs the Vonger Corporation. Yep. Okay, so we then see Mikkel get to work doing his investigative journalism, which apparently involves highlighting every single line of this report that he got from Officer Morell. Wait, okay, so I confess, I'm actually that kind of a highlighter where I'm like, well, everything's important, and I'll just highlight everything on the page. Like, why not just dip the page in ink and then let it dry? Uh, it's i never intend to i just i just do it because i'm like well i gotta know this i gotta know this i gotta know this i'm like that's important too the 
folks, as someone who works in post-secondary education, I'm going to give you a clue. It may not work for investigative reporting, (laughs) but if you have the chance to read something, read the summary first, because that's usually where it'll just tell you the most important things. Oh, so read the back of the book. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Or the end of the chapter. Sure. (laughs) Okay, so basically as he's doing this, we're seeing it happen in flashbacks. So we see Officer Morel David Denchik interviewing the family, searching the island, and then he decides he's going to go meet with the man. So we get to see what he looks like now, and he's played by Donald Sumter. And more or less what we're learning is that Harriet had secrets. People didn't really know who she was or what she was interested in. And there's a mention of something called the Rebecca case, which is mm-hmm. Officer Morell's White Whale? Yeah. Is it his or is it his predecessors? Basically, there's like, we're meant to glom onto this idea that a lot of investigators have a case that got away from them. And there was another case that had something kind of similar to it yeah and then this is also when we get the the list of as of we as we know now yes names and phone numbers and Mm -hmm. this is something that is inherently swedish because of those numbers and i wonder i wonder if they put this in america how they because again like this is a big plot point of the the book and the film right like what they would have done because obviously there's more phone number there's more numbers in american phone numbers Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah that does make sense because you look at this and you just think, oh, well, that's not telephone numbers. But then they say, oh, yeah, it's telephone numbers. It's Swedish. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whenever the audience doesn't understand anything, just say it's Swedish. It's Swedish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, makes sense. Okay. All right. So let's get into it. So back in Stockholm, Lisbeth meets with Niles Berman, who is played by Jorik van Wagenien. No. Mm-hmm. Jorik van Wagen. Ninjin? Ninjin. It's a long name. Wagonigan. There we go. Sure. (laughs) All you need to know is that he is her new guardian, and he outlines her quote-unquote troubled and violent past, and he even threatens her with institutionalization. He is immediately... Yeah. Someone you want to get murdered. It is red flag central. This guy is clearly bad news. And it just as a first impression, you think, well, this guy's a piece of shit. Well, and I mean, going back to earlier with um, Fincher's quotes about, you know, rapist versus serial killer and like how a, a rapist wants to exert power. You already mm-hmm. see that power being exerted in this scene. And it's obvious that this is not his first time doing this. Oh, no. And I did find an interesting perspective by uh, a woman named Grace LaPointe, who wrote Mm -hmm. on Book Riot. She did a piece called A Disability Rights Perspective on Lisbeth Salander. And she made the interesting point that we can infer that Lisbeth has suffered some kind of mental illness, and that's why she's been put into the care of the state. So she says, a closer analysis shows that she's isolated and disenfranchised, a mentally ill ward of the state with a violent juvenile criminal record. But really what we're seeing is the intersecting systems of mental health, social services, and criminal justice have failed her, and that's part of the reason why she doesn't go to the police. She has to take matters into her own hands because she doesn't think anyone will believe her based on her situation um and also because she does illegal work right like she's a hacker yeah but also like she knows this is not her first rodeo she knows people won't believe her Mm -hmm. and honestly the this because again the reason she's a ward that is explored in the second book right 
And that is the only, my only issue with like, oh, I hate that we don't get that because I find that aspect of the story so fascinating. It's frustrating as it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. But as we have it here, it's just like, oh, she's a ward of the state because. Right. Because. Something. Yeah. Yeah. I think the film maybe does her a little dirty as a character because it's not willing to invest in her. But yeah, when we get to the rape, I will have more to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the first or second rape. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So back on the island, Mikhail dines with Martin and his wife, Liv, who is so small and inconsequential, she literally doesn't have an actress who plays her. I could not find this actress's name. <laughs> but I do want to give a shout out to the houseborn because uh, I would live in this house. It's so pretty. It's so the, gla- the glass. Mm-hmm. which. I guess if you live on an island that's like really, really rec- like secluded, um, sure, like yeah. by all means. But uh-huh. in a horror movie land, like big no no. <laughs> well, and uh, again, you said, oh, well, the list of suspects is pretty small because of how few characters we have. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, a lot of the things about this house also suggest like he's quite a bit more modern, but he's also got this element of voyeurism in the way that he's just got a wall of windows. Well- I will say, and we'll talk more about Skarsgård as we get to like when when we get to his reveal. But mm-hmm. I, he plays everything so coolly in Love this it. movie. Like mm-hmm. even when he he's like, no, give him, do with him. Honestly, like I, I, it's to the point where I almost wish we had like, uh, like a nobody playing this character because it's just the fact that it is Stellan Skarsgård. You're just like, well, you wouldn't just cast Stellan Skarsgård <laughs> in this role right. if he wasn't a murderer. But I think you're retroactively doing it because I think back right. in 2011, most North Americans wouldn't really know who he was. I guess that's true. Hey, Deep Blue Sea came out like 12 years before. <laughs> that is true. I was also waiting to see how long it would take you to reference it. <laughs> that's the, literally the only thing I can see him in. I just see him in Deep Blue Sea. That is it. <laughs> He's pissing into the wind. Oh, God uh yeah so very much the introduction is okay this guy's gonna be really helpful to you he doesn't try to gloss over things with harriet in fact he actively even encourages mikhail to make harriet a big part of the book because that's his cover is that he's writing an autobiography yeah yeah uh i guess biography not autobiography (laughs) thank you for that (laughs) i always confuse them and then i'm like no dumb shit come on figure it out I always think about autoerotic asphyxiation. That's how I that's how I connect the two. Uh, okay. Maybe you are the target audience for this movie. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. <laughs> okay. So in the morning, Cecilia, who is a new character played by Geraldine James, this is Harold's daughter, the Nazi, and Harriet's well, so wait, I'm sorry. Harold the Nazi's daughter. <laughs> Yes, Harold the Nazi. She is the daughter of him. She is not a Nazi daughter. That we know of. That we. She seems very adamant that she does not like her father because of that. Yeah. Although she does still speak to him. It's. I mean, yeah, because this is a family that has been in a, like, has been plagued with Nazis and mm-hmm. or Nazi sympathizers. So yes, yeah. So there is another Nazi that we have not talked about. That is Gottfried, and that is Martin and Harriet's father, and he died in 1960. Yeah. So he was out of the picture before Harriet disappeared. So he's not a suspect. So Cecilia comes over to the cottage, and she's very much. I know why you're here. I'm looking at your suspect wall. Which oh, he makes no effort to cover up. Not discreet. I was like, girl, like you, you are supposed to be hiding under the pretense uh-huh. of a biography, and you have a fucking murder board mm-hmm. for Harriet. 
Yeah, it is not subtle. He does not do a good job of trying to downplay why he is there, what he's doing. She obviously sees right through it, but she does still direct him to Anita, who is her sister, who has kind of disappeared. She's lost track of her, but she knows she's somewhere in London. Yes, and I, we'll talk about that more when we get to the again the very, very end, but yes. Sure. Okay, so back to Elizabeth, and here we go again. So okay. she visits Palmgren at his home to see how he's recovering from his stroke. So this is like the closest we get to feeling what their relationship was like. Uh, and then she ends up breaking her laptop, fighting a thief in the subway. And this is also a, the first kind of instance we get of how, quote unquote, violent she is. Because she is not afraid to go after this guy to try to beat the shit out of him. But also she's scrappy. This is not a really, like, action-heavy movie, but this scene is actually really impressive. I mean, I say impressive, like, oh my god, like, it's Fenshin. Like, of course it's impressive, but, like, right. it's it, this is a thrilling scene, if you will. Well, and it goes on for longer than you might expect, because mm -hmm. I feel like normally what you would see is she would chase after the guy, she would grab her bag back, they might tussle a little bit, and then she would run away. And here it's like, they're full-on fighting on this escalator for... I want to oh, say yeah. about 30 seconds, and then she slides down the middle section, and it's all very fun. All these extras are like, what the fuck? What the hell? <laughs> Just another day in Stockholm. <laughs> so, yeah, she breaks her laptop, and she realizes, okay, well, this is my livelihood, so she needs to get a financial advance from new guardian Nils. So she goes to him for money, and he forces her to fillet him. So, uh, this is a prolonged scene. It's, yep. I'm going to say it's not graphic because it's not like, we're not... We're not seeing Dick, but we are seeing her head at his crotch and like blowjob motions. What is the fabric? Because he says something to her about what fabric his pants are made of, as if it's supposed to impress her or like make her more inclined to suck his dick. I mean, I was not listening to him talk about the fabric. I was more, well, <laughs> dear Lord, can we no, move I, this on? I'm so uncomfortable. She repeats it back to him when she gets her revenge later. She's like, she picks up something and she's like, oh, and she says the name of the fabric again before oh, she see. gets okay. her revenge again. But it, it's something. It's something I didn't, I didn't know before. But anyway, yeah, first of all, um, not only is this rape, but he's also a head pusher. And... <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, um, even in consensual sex, um, do not push someone's head down to your crotch or, or anywhere for that matter. Like, let them go of their own pace. Right. Yes. Uh, if people want to go near your nether regions, they will do so willingly. Or you can just ask them. Of course, that's not the case here because this is full on rape. But yeah. It, um, yeah. I mean, OK. Do you want to talk about things here or do you want to wait until we get to the no, next? No, let's, let's wait. OK, let's wait. OK. So, back to the happy side of the story. <laughs> yeah. Mikhail flies to London, and this is so that he can speak to Anita, who is played by Jolie Richardson. I'm sorry yeah. for folks who haven't seen the film. I definitely spoiled it earlier, who she really is. It's fine. Um, also, I, I don't know about you. Every time I see Jolie Richardson, I just, I just, it breaks my heart, because I always think about Natasha Richardson. Oh, I don't. But okay. <laughs> I can understand why you would. No, I just always think, oh, it's wife from Nip Tuck. Oh, yeah. No, I, I grew up watching that Lindsay Lohan, The Parent Trap. So I just like, right. which granted, Jolie Richardson was in 101 Dalmatians. So they both had their Disney live action things. But mm. still, oh, God, Natasha Richardson. Rip. Yeah. Mm. 
Anyway. So the character of Anita is very guarded and she doesn't really give up too much except to say that Harriet was prone to mood swings and that Anita felt very sorry for her. I will say, though, that she plays things. I mean, she's guarded, but she's also playing it very cool. Like someone mm-hmm. just I guess she because she has Anita's identity. But I'm just yes. like, if anyone from your family mm-hmm. like showed up on your doorstep. They would know who you were. I Absolutely. Like. Oh, yeah, because when she finally sees Henrik at the end of the film, he immediately recognizes her. Like, she is just so lucky no one hopped on a plane from Sweden mm-hmm. to go to London. Well, it, it very much makes sense as to why she is not in contact with Cecilia, because she should be her sister, and they right. hypothetically didn't end things in a bad way, but it's very much, oh, my sister disappeared, and we're not really in touch anymore. It's like, yeah, okay, That's now we know too. why. Anita's actually dead, and Cecilia doesn't even know that. Right. Ooh. Yeah. Un- unrelated to the case, she died in yeah. a car accident with her husband. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Y'all, just go watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we can't tell you everything. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so th- this seems like a bit of a red herring sort of lost cause. Like, he didn't really get too, too much out of this, but obviously it becomes important later. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go back to Lisbeth. So she sets up another meeting with Nils. This is a difference from the Swedish version, where she seems more trepidatious and uncomfortable with what she's about to do. Whereas here, she seems to know exactly what she's about to encounter. Well, to an extent, because in all versions of this scene, she's like, I thought it was just going to be another blowjob. I didn't think you were going to do this, Mm -hmm. which... (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. So this time he directs her to his house as opposed to his office. And then when she gets in, he immediately takes her to the bedroom and then he handcuffs her. He blacks her out. When she wakes up, she is face down on the bed and he proceeds to anally rape her. And it's very clear very quickly that she is videotaping this via her backpack. But this is prolonged and it is graphic and it is really really fucking horrible to watch yes so there is a 15 minute featurette on the blu-ray that's called rape revenge and it is about them just talking about filming the scene and all parties involved i already said earlier you know mara was like i think the scenes with bureau men tell you the most about her and the other two movies sort of live or die on how you portray those scenes which again okay we don't get that fincher Goes on to say, if you're going to do a revenge tale, you got to feel the slight, which... No. Well, so that's the thing. That's his mindset. And of course, and the, the, the choice soundbite that I had from him, and you're going to cringe, but mm-hmm. this is what he says. Okay. So he, he mentioned Straw Dogs a lot, the original Straw Dogs. Right. And he says, Straw Dogs has an amazing rape sequence, but it's borderline titillating, and so you have to walk around that boundary. And so I just thought that the calling a rape scene amazing was a very interesting choice of words. Uh, yeah, interesting. That's not even how I would have described it, but sure. Well, how would you describe it? I would say it is... Oh, th- this might get us another one-star review, Trace, uh, because I'm being too woke and all that stuff, but... I would say it's a very bad choice of words and that it's a very masculine approach. And honestly, watching this scene is so fucking male gazy because it looks like we're supposed to get turned on by Mara's half nude body. So, okay, so then they bring in the costume designer, Trish Somerville, who, um, by the way, she gets a lot of airtime on these features and she's actually seems really cool. But oh, cool. Okay. Her 
I don't know why she's even on this featurette, to be honest, because mm-hmm. she's the costume designer. But this is – and it's a little long, so bear with me. But she okay. says, he, meaning Fincher, doesn't want to make anything gratuitous. He just wants to show that there is this large group of women, this group of girls, that are used and abused this way because they have no other options. They can't call the police because if they have a previous record or entered into the system, they're never going to be believed about anything that they do or say. And there's always going to be this person in control of their lives that's really the person that's manipulating and using them. So they're this lost group that a lot of people don't think of, especially someone that looks like Salander. I think a lot of people think, oh, you're asking for it because you look that way. Or if you clean yourself up, this wouldn't happen to you. But it has nothing to do with your physical appearance. It's just that there's venomous creatures in society that prey on everyone. I think that was really valid that she does look that way. These things do happen to her. And then she takes charge and tries to rectify them herself. Now, mm-hmm. she doesn't really comment on the uh, on whether or not you think the scene is gratuitous or not. This right. woman does not. But that doesn't, again, that's one person's opinion. Right. So we've talked about this before, right? The issue with rape revenge, and because I've I've made I've gotten this wrong before, and you have corrected me, but it is that, oh my god, is that you have to see, you have to go through this rape scene to get to the revenge. That's what some people feel. So mm-hmm. that's often the argument to be made about why we need to see a certain level of graphicness to the violence. So it has to correspond or put you on the side of the victim. And we should acknowledge it's not always women because, of course, men are also raped in films and in mm-hmm. real life. But the whole point is that you need to side with the degradation, the humiliation, the pain and the suffering so that when they do finally break and then recover and go on their revenge side, that it feels warranted that the people who did this to them merit death, castration, their own humiliation and so on. Yeah. Uh, also, I will actually correct ourselves. We have done a rape revenge film before, but on our Patreon, which was the remake of The Last House on the Left. Yeah, I also realized we talked about The Perfection. Oh, yeah, there you go. It's like we we have done this before, but we've also been told that we haven't always done it as well as we should have. Mm. Uh, we have been asked to make sure that we're including female perspectives. I think part of this, I, I had forgotten how bad this is until we hit play on this. Mm. But also, I think that as men, we have a responsibility to work out some of this stuff and be able to talk about it and not always have to rely on other people. So yes, we could have had more informed discussion about this, but I think it's important for us to be able to do it ourselves as well. Well, and th- that's where I'm going to go with this, you know, like, I'm not going to try to say like, to, to speak for anyone else. I'm just gonna right. say how I react to rape revenge films. And I really do like rape revenge films um okay. there is a as someone who has not been Ooh, raped, you were about um, to say catharsis well no i i i personally get so much catharsis from mm-hmm. rape revenge films and right. i understand the argument that you know oh but like you shouldn't have to see which is where promising young woman comes in right because you don't see the rape in that movie you see the revenge portion and well and there's lots of different ways to do it so like even if we're comparing the Swedish version versus this version this is more graphic it's more sustained it shows more nudity in the Swedish version we actually focus on rapace so we're seeing her face and her reactions and mm-hmm. oftentimes I'm not going to okay no I'm not yeah, going to no. try try it yeah keep all of this in okay yep so one of the ways that people who 
think that it's important to see it, but also don't want the graphicness is they will say it should focus on the woman's experience. So it should be on her face. It should be on how she's processing it. We shouldn't be seeing thrusting. We shouldn't see the person who is perpetrating this violence because that is what makes it salacious and harder for people to deal with. And when you see the way that people talk about things like violation, where it, it is a bit of a fugue state, but when you see the rape in that film, it's actually intercut. Like we're seeing her face, we're seeing her hand touching grass and so on. And I think for me, that's the kind that I prefer when we do watch rape revenge films, because I know what's happening. I know how bad it is. I don't need to see Jodie Foster absolutely destroyed in The Accused, because I know what rape fucking is, and I know how horrible it is. So I just need to know that it has happened, and then I'm on her side, or his side, or their side. So um, I'm glad you brought a violation because that's that's one of my top films of the year. And um, I, I'm going to say a descriptor, which I, I have been called out, not by listeners, but by our friends. But like, I, violation is the one like, a, an example of what I would call of um, a tasteful rape in a rape revenge film where it's filmed in a way that I don't feel as I mean, I feel gross. I feel disgusting because I'm aware of what's yeah. going on. But it's filmed in a way where it's. It's not as grungy. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe that's not the right word. Um, I will say, I am okay with this particular rape scene. Okay. Um, I know people may disagree, but for me, I it's not that I need to see the rape. It's not that I need the rape to be violent or graphic or gratuitous. But I, it's something about like almost putting you in. You're giving, in the mind of the rapist, which I get what you just said, is like, you shouldn't have to do that. You should be in the mind of the victim because you should be enduring what she's enduring and like going through it. But for me, I almost, I'm going to use the word like, Okay. I almost like being put in this depraved mind, almost making me complicit in this scene. And I, okay. I... I understand that that is not something that people, a lot of people want to experience. And it's something that a lot people might even say that I am really fucked up for saying that. Well, um, I, I think it's in trust. Oh, God. Now I'm saying it. I'm intrigued by your use of the word complicit. Because, of course, when we do talk about even horror, broadly speaking, there's so many films that do make us complicit in our voyeurism of mm-hmm. depraved acts, right? Like, why do we enjoy watching people get their eyeballs pulled out or their Achilles tendons sliced and so on? Like, it, and sometimes good horror will actually turn that lens back on you and say, what are you enjoying about this? Why do you like this? And yeah. there's a lot to be said about the therapeutic value of seeing horrors on screen and having to process them. So I I mean, I think that's again, why it's really important for us to say these are our own personal preferences about how we want this. I mean, some people don't ever want to see rape on screen. Some people don't ever want to watch a rape revenge film. It's also not an exclusively male thing. There's a lot of women who actually really enjoy that catharsis and mm-hmm. getting getting to experience it in a quote-unquote safe way where you can process it. And I think for me, the reason why I don't like this is because it does feel really fucking male gazy. I think it's exploitative when she goes back to her apartment 
and we mm-hmm. have to see her bleeding in the shower, I feel like it's a step further than it needs to go. And I also feel like the film isn't as interested in addressing her trauma. So we're we're going to get a second rape scene, but I feel mm-hmm. like it doesn't actually illuminate anything about how she is feeling apart from the fact that she wants to make him suffer. I will agree with your second part. I, I agree that it doesn't explore her trauma well enough. We never, I mean, outside of, you know, her just disgusted reaction when she's washing her mouth out. Well, actually, sorry, that's after the blowjob scene. Right. Um, yeah, we don't really get the aftermath of this. No. Uh, unless the, the the idea is to be like, well, no, she's tough. She can handle it, quote unquote. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. And I'm not sitting here saying, like, because, again, I, there's something about watching a heinous act, a violent act, and seeing it, and it's it, in in its entirety and in its Mm -hmm. realism. And it's not that I'm like, oh, I want to see someone get raped. Right. Um, And again, don't like, please don't call me a rape apologist because that's not what I'm trying to, (laughs) that's not what I'm doing. Um, It's more so that it's like, I feel like some people need to see the realism of this because I feel like for for me personally, glossing over the rape is, Right. It's it it makes d- it too easy for people to just say, oh, and then she's raped and it's horrible. Yes. And granted, I mean, again, like a rape scene in a film is going to challenge most viewers. And if you mm-hmm. don't want to be challenged in that way, th- that is fine. You don't. Absolutely. I, I, I would never say, well, that fuck you. Watch the movie. Um, it's just I, I I just prefer to see to feel. To right. feel what this rape scene is trying to make me feel. And for some people like you, Joe, maybe it's easier for you to be like, it, she was raped. I feel immediately what she feels. Mm-hmm. For me as a, as a different viewer, it's I prefer to actually experience it to to feel as low as the victim. Survivor. To feel, to feel as low as the survivor does. And right. I, I'm... I'm hesitant to even say that on the air with all of our listeners saying, like, listening to this, because I don't want y'all to think that I'm like, yay, like, I love watching. No, no, re- that, it's coming through. Don't don't worry too much about that. In part, also because I think we need to be able to have the conversations without feeling like, oh, if I get it wrong, somebody's going to come after me. Like the whole reason we're literally unpacking this and we're spending the time on it is because these are conversations that are worth having and maybe getting wrong and maybe being gently corrected or having other people chime in with their own thoughts but yeah it's and, valuable important work that needs to happen and i think that trigger warnings and content warnings are very valid i mean like, I, i'm coming off like two months ago i was at fantastic fest and there were two films that really really set attendees on fire right. because of the amount well one of them had a lot of rape in it um and the other one was a film that started off like a Christopher Guest comedy and then is divided in the middle by two very, very graphic and upsetting rape scenes. Right. Um, and so I got to see a lot of people react mm-hmm. to very negatively to 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 these two films. And I mean, you know, it, without getting too deep into it, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, it's kind of a case by case basis, right? Like sure. in, in a film, how does it handle the rape? How does mm-hmm. it handle the aftermath? How does it do it? Yeah. I, I am okay with this one. I, I can't really say why, except that I, I don't know. I guess I'm comparing it to other rape scenes in my mind. Like, but also when you say it's gratuitous, it's, it feels male gazy. For me, the rape scene is putting you in, in the perspective of the rapist, which may not be what people or you want to see. Right. For me, I'm okay with it. Okay. It, I don't know. 
Okay. Well, you know what? Why don't we leave it here for now? Because we'll have another opportunity yes. to talk about it from a flip gender perspective in a couple of scenes. Okay, so let's let's take a deep breath. Let's jump back to the other yep. half of the storyline for a little bit. So we go back to the island, and this is when Erica, the Robin Wright character, comes for dinner. And Henrik and Martin more or less offer to take over the financials for Millennium, which is revealed to be in very dire straits after yeah. basically Mikhail bankrupted the magazine. <laughs> Look, I work in a newspaper. It's hard to get ads for a print paper. Like, it, mm -hmm. I know this is 10 years ago, but it wasn't easier back then. <laughs> right. Well, and it should be noted. I mean, I think if you read the books, you really get a sense of their kind of manifesto and the way that they're approaching political stories. But this is very much a far left leaning paper. So it's yeah. going to be politically incendiary to a lot of people. And that doesn't make it a great financial investment for certain folks. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. My paper is the same. <laughs> well, um, good luck to you, sir. I know, right? <laughs> so they end up taking the deal, and this makes big waves, and we get a little bit more of this, like, well, how does Werner Strom feel about it? And it also catches Lizbeth's attention because as she is recuperating from her trauma, we see that she is actively surveilling Werner Strom and looking at his emails and so on. So Mikhail is also still on the hunt looking through this evidence that he has access to. So he's got photos of the day of Harriet's disappearance back in 1966. And he spots one taken during the parade where she seems to be looking kind of mm -hmm. off to the side and something has caught her attention and then she leaves the parade. So he makes a kind of collage so that he can understand the timeline a little bit more. And this is when he realizes that he needs more of these photos. So he goes down to the paper, he gets those. <laughs> I, I will I will tell you, I mean, like, it, it's not really a contrivance, but goddamn, is he fucking lucky he can find that woman that was taking that photo. Oh my god, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even reading the book, I was like, dude, you are fucking lucky <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of happenstance things where you go oh this is a little convenient that he manages to find the right document or the right photo or the right person mm -hmm. but i feel like that's also kind of what real life investigations yeah. are like where you just have to sift through things and sometimes you get lucky i mean the, the fact of the matter is i mean like we're watching a two and a half hour movie but the hours of research that are going into mikhail here oh yeah like, I mean, it looks so boring. <laughs> Especially since he doesn't know if he's on the right track. So he could just be chasing things that don't turn into anything. Which is why he's lucky he's getting paid double salary even if he fails. There you go. Really, he's just stretching this out. Just hang out at that cottage with that Honestly, cat and those chunky knit sweaters. Yes, yes. Oh my god, Although, I oh coveted his entire wardrobe from this movie. His cottage, though, like looks cold it's all very the cold. time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a Swedish winter? Ooh. Have that fire mm -hmm. burning all the mm -hmm. time. I do love that he's very city and he can't really light his own fire. So he needs the groundskeeper to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Have we had enough of a break? Yeah, because we're going back in another rape scene. Indeed. Yeah. So Lizbeth more or less sets up another 
meeting with Nils, and this time she brings her taser. So she walks in, she tases him, and then she proceeds to tie him up, and she anally rapes him with a dildo, so we're doing tick for tack, and then she also blackmails him for financial independence, so she more or less coerces him into saying, you're gonna fabricate these reports, you're going to never see me again, you're also going to remain abstinent, and to guarantee that he follows through on that she actually tattoos him with the words i am a rapist pig um okay before we get into this tick for tack yeah like tic-tac-toe oh my god okay tit for tat dude damn it (laughs) (laughs) uh no it's a canadian expression you probably Uh, just never heard it well no because i was like because okay tick for tack but then you're missing the toe so like it doesn't make any sense that's only if there's a third person involved that's true that's true okay so <laughs> and because you brought this up a lot too on the show where it's like you know oh because the worst thing that could happen to a man is that something goes up his ass right yeah and honestly that's that's part of the reason why i think i also really read the first rape sequence as inherently male gazy and i recognize that this is obviously coming from the book and the previous film version so it's not as though fincher says oh well what can we do to make this really bad but again right there's more sustained kind of graphicness in this scene. So, I mean, not that I'm saying like, oh, getting raped in the ass is worse than raped in the vagina, but it's one of those things where I'm just like, why, 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 why do, why sodomize to rape? I mean, it must be a power thing because it's like. It is, yeah. uh, yeah. It's also taboo, right? Like we're really trying to show, I think, that he's depraved because it's quote unquote worse to go for the butt okay so what you can go first but what what are does this rub you as the wrong way as much as the previous rape scene does <sighs> yeah okay so now i'm the one who's gonna try to stumble my way through this okay that's fine so it doesn't and i had to do a little bit of soul searching and part of this i think is it falls into the history of how this is traditionally depicted and i went down a rabbit hole, search mm-hmm. history destroyed. I went looking for instances of when men are anally raped. Mm-hmm. And the major thing that came up was that it's often depicted in comedies. So if we see men yep. getting raped at all, it's usually in comedies. And if men get raped in the ass, it's usually like for prison-based kind of humor. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So really, when we think about men being raped, there's a whole section of people who will just say, oh, well, it doesn't happen. Like Josh Hartnett didn't get raped in 40 days and 40 nights. He's just like strapped to a bed with an eternal heart on and his girlfriend comes in and sits on it. And you're like, no, dude, that's rape. Is his girlfriend Vanessa Shaw in that movie? I think so. I think so, too. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> but it, OK, so so there's yeah. one section of people who just like don't believe it. And then there's a bunch of people who think that it's really funny when it happens. And then there's the people who maybe look at this and say, well, this is the tit for tat, right? Like he deserved mm-hmm. it. She's really just paying him back what he did to her. And for some reason, and I don't find it cathartic, but I do... I'm less bothered by it because I do feel like he deserves it. Mm-hmm. Maybe not this. He deserves punishment of some kind. And in and what we know of Lisbeth is that this feels appropriate 
in her mind. And as the survivor of a sexual assault, I'm inclined to side with her. And therefore, if she feels that this is reflective punishment, then I go along with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I will be up front. I, I find catharsis in this scene. Like, I, I 100%. I mean, like, I'm not cheering in my seat going, fuck yeah, but I'm in my head thinking to myself, fuck yeah. Like, right. when she kicks it into him because we, right. we, we get we get her inserted first it's this mm-hmm. long metal dildo right there's no lube presumably so she's just forcing this in which fine that's fine because he used he shoved into her in her rape scene like i i am i am very much eye for an eye tip for tad in this um okay i i understand i mean i i'm the film to me is not making light of any of this. Okay. Um, there is no joke here. And the fact that she is raping him in the ass is not, again, like maybe if you're a viewer, you find that funny. I, go, talk, go talk to someone about that. But <laughs> like, I don't ever for once think the film is taking this lightly. And I do feel like this is deserved. And I do feel cathartic catharsis from this. And I am very much in my mind saying, fuck yeah. Um, I think it's that for me, this feels like it's specifically aimed at male viewers like there's a presumed maleness of the audience and like that moment where she kicks it it's mm-hmm. it's just that extra like ooh, you know like when you see men get hit in the balls in movies and ever all the men just kind of like cross their legs and cringe a little bit that's what yeah. this feels like but taken to another level yeah yeah no, I, I I agree. Um, I will say too. So the actor that plays Bureman, he did say that um he was like, and I mean I, I don't know if this is like really important because it's just the actor talking about like I just I always think about a scene like this. You know, right. Mara talks about how she's like, yeah, like you know when you're filming, you're like, I just have to get past that one scene, and like right. her rape scene obviously was the scene. Um, Yorick van Wageningen, uh, he, he said, you know, I found the raping scene harder as opposed to the scene where I am raped. He's like, they're, they're both difficult to do, but to me, the former was more difficult, which probably is for the best. So he found that right. put, like, b- being a rapist was harder for him. But I just find that interesting that he, I mean, cause I mean, he's exposed very much so here, but right. he's such a despicable human being that it's like, well, who cares? Do you... Because we're getting a different kind of nudity as well, right? Like, he's not flat on his stomach in the way that she was. We we don't see his penis. We don't see his penis, which is, to be honest, another thing that I'm interested in. Because oftentimes in rape revenge films, when you you go this direction, like when we get Mm -hmm. into things like sodomy, when we get into castration, like, oftentimes we will see more of this. Like, I don't know that... I was about to say, I don't know that this is on par with what she goes through. And I don't even really know how I'm qualifying that. So, okay, I I, I get what you're saying, though, right? Like, is it as bad as what she was going through? To me, that's not what's important here. What is important is, is she satisfied with what she has done to him? So... To me, I do feel like she feels that way. Um, she is like, yeah, I have done my part. I have done my, I, I, my the rest of my conservatorship is set right now because right. I have done everything I can. So I feel like if she didn't think something was up to par with what she went through, mm-hmm. she would have done something else. Okay. I, I don't can, know. I, mean, I can again, get behind that. that. My thought process on that. I think part of what doesn't work as much for me, and it is... I think a big issue with this film being part of an intended 
franchise or trilogy is mm-hmm. that because we're not then spending any kind of time delving into her psychological responses to this like we see the physical response she right. re-rapes this guy and she gets her vengeance she gets you know financial stability and and hopefully some kind of empowerment out of it but yeah. because we don't actually know any sort of long-term effects we don't get her to ever address it like we see that we see that she is presumably okay to engage in consensual sex later with mikhail but i worry that as audiences we misinterpret this and i'm i'm gonna draw from a male critic who this is actually from a review in the chicago reader by noah berlatsky and i'm not saying this to single him out this is just kind of representative of certain things that i saw so Mm -hmm. this is a review for girl in the spider's web but he compares the perceived non-success of the new film compared to the success of this film where he says what makes girl with the dragon tattoo special is that it's a rape revenge narrative in which the main character isn't defined by either the sexual violence done to her or the revenge she takes on those who harm her or others what was done to her matters, but it's not all of who she is. Her imperilous confidence, her frank earthiness, her love of a puzzle, her rare smile, those are who she is, not her trauma. And to me, that actually clarifies that people miss the point of this, because her trauma is 100% part of who she is, if not her defining trait. And I think that you can still see her as empowered, and she is obviously like a badass motherfucker in this movie but i think by sidelining everything that goes along with this to say well she got her revenge and then she moves on and she's not defined by it i'm like i i don't think that this has had the impact that it needed to have well again that's where that quote from mara comes in though where she's like it it's important that we see this because it plays such a big part in the two future films and it's like (sighs) Yeah, but like, uh, unfortunately, yes, we only have the one film to go off of. Yeah, exactly. But like, here's the thing, though. So let's take out these rape scenes. Okay. Let's take out the blowjob. Let's take out her second rape and then her rape of him. I don't think that I don't want to take them out completely. I just don't think we I think we can do them in abbreviated format and then actually dedicate some time to exploring what they mean. I mean, at this, maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like at the end of this point, it's all to, to personal preference. And granted, though, Possibly. you also have a man writing this based mm-hmm. off a book written by a man, yes. directed by a man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of men. It's a lot of men. It is a lot, it is a lot of men. But I also don't think for one second that Mara was ever, like, not consulted for how all this was going. Like, I mean, again, based on what I've seen like of these behind-the-scenes footage, and again, they, there is some footage of, like, them rehearsing this rape scene i mean i'm um, sure she felt comfortable as an actor but yeah but i'm you're sure she film. also didn't go to david fincher and say hey no we're not doing the rape this way well yeah no absolutely not um i, I get it, it's it's tricky i um, don't think <laughs> there's a right or wrong answer if mm-hmm. anything i again i hope that we're opening up a discussion because i i think people tread lightly around rape revenge films in general because they don't always know how to process it and they don't want to offend anybody and yeah so i i just hope that maybe this affords people an opportunity to think about how they respond to it and what they do or don't like 
Yeah, and I mean, like, again, like, I mean, like, to briefly mention on my festival experience from two months ago, I saw both sides of this argument. I saw people calling people who liked these films with rape rape apologists. I saw yeah. people who were who liked the films that were that were calling the people that were denouncing them, like, you know, I mean, like, just sensitive salaries and, and blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And again, there's a medium ground here, and there's a discussion to be had. It just mm-hmm. it's all happening in a fucking Facebook group, so there's no nuance. Yeah, not maybe not the best <laughs> format for that to happen. But at the end of the day, here's the thing. I I've already, I like rape revenge films. I, I am always interested to see how films posit rape and their revenge, or just one, if there's just one side of it. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, I understand why someone would not... Yes. Like, wh- why it's an immediate no. Mm-hmm. I understand why people would want more content warnings. I, uh, I, again, th- that's it. Th- that is it, and it's yeah. all personal preference. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't have an issue with the way this is portrayed. But... Okay. I don't I, I don't begrudge you for you thinking that there is an issue there. I mean, I'm not saying burn the film to the ground yeah, and yeah, no one should no, see it. It's just it I didn't like the way it was done. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. I, I'm not going to be like, <laughs> well, <laughs> you're review, wrong. God, Joe Lipsick. He, he just he, he wants to get rid of all the rape. Honestly, I keep sucking the fun. No. OK, we're not going to go there. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't, I don't. no. Anyway, but listeners, I mean, you know, obviously. I'm sure thoughts will be had. Feel free to reach out. Yeah. Politely. Okay. Okay. So we move back to Blumkiss. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't met yet, by the way. <laughs> yep. Sure haven't. <laughs> so he has made a breakthrough in his photographs. And you you teased it earlier that basically he discovers that he needs to get the other side of the photos so that we can figure out what Harriet was looking at on the day of the parade. So, um, he he makes that discovery, but he doesn't quite put it together. And then his daughter, Nilla, who is played by Josephine Asplen, shows up and she cracks the code of what the numbers are. So he thought they were telephone numbers. And she says, no, they're actually Bible verses. And we realize they're from Leviticus. Good for fucking her, though, right? I mean, it's one of those things where I think, oh, is she at school studying religion? Because she just like, she knew those numbers. <laughs> So this leads him back then to the Rebecca Cold case that the officer Morell mentioned earlier on, because he realizes that the quote has like a bit of a connection to something that he had said earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just when it feels like he's making this headway in the case, that's when Henrik has a heart attack and gets rushed to the hospital. And then Mikhail gets fired from the case by the family. Yeah, uh, I wrote my notes. <laughs> Martin's mother's a cunt. Yeah, she she I mean, admittedly, they are at a hospital waiting for news about maybe a loved one. But uh... I, I mean, again, she was married to a Nazi. And as mm-hmm. we will learn later, her daughter told her that her husband was raping her and she didn't do shit. Yeah, not a great depiction of motherhood. This character also only has like one scene. And it's this despicable scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, sorry, this despicable moment for her. <laughs> Indeed. So it seems like, okay, well, the case is now done because Mikhail has been fired, but Dirk and Martin kind of bring him back in and say, no, we want you to keep going. And Mikhail doesn't really tell them what he's discovered. So he just ends up saying that he wants a research assistant. And this is what brings him to Lisbeth. I will say, this is the weird, I mean, the pacing for this movie. So, you know, we have, what, 75 minutes. Mm -hmm. They figure out it's Martin, I want to say 30 minutes later. 
Yeah, once it gets going, basically once Lizbeth gets on the case, they crack it very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I, I, again, I just, I can't remember, maybe this is drawn out a bit more in the book. But yeah, I just remember being so shocked because I was like, oh, there's, there's an hour left of the movie. Fine, we're good. But yeah, oh, they solve it 30 minutes because mm-hmm. we have this 30 minute epilogue. <laughs> it's almost like a coda. Like, hey, let's just check in with the characters. How are they doing months but- later? But that's when you, again, when you hear Fincher say, like, the, the murder is, the, the mystery is the red herring. What's bringing you in is the relationship. So it's like, okay, but we're going to, yeah, yeah. Mm. Like, th- that's clearly what they were, yeah, we're going to solve this murder at the end of Act 4 of our five-act movie. Right. So uh, in case we wanted just a touch of queer content, we do mm. get a scene where Lizbeth picks up a romantic interest this is miriam played by elodie young did you recognize the actress okay um i meant to google her because i i didn't recognize the actress but i recognized her name mm-hmm. she's from daredevil the tv show from netflix oh is she she's electra she's electra yeah. right yeah okay funny yeah, that yeah. you said electra earlier i know right <laughs> <laughs> oh my god the red string it's all connected um yeah but, you know, i mean i don't really have much to say on her queerness because it's presented so matter-of-factly but because of that i appreciate it I like it, and this is going to sound a little bit weird, but I was frustrated that we get two consensual sex scenes, again, using air quotes here, and this is the one that's tamer, and it's queer, and Mm. I'm frustrated by that as a result. Uh, I understand that frustration, but I think the mindset behind it was, though, this girl isn't really a character in this movie, which... I mean, yeah, Fair. you can say that's the that you can say that that that's a problem. Like this girl should be a kid, but but mm-hmm. it's not. Mikhail is the character. Like we have to get them together. So I understand your frustration, but I do understand the narrative reason as to why this isn't like given more time. Yeah, I'm gonna push back on it slightly, if only because you could have lost this and oh. just had her not be bisexual in this movie, and instead it feels like a deliberate effort to say, oh well. Lizbeth is this kind of character. You know, she dresses all in black and she looks a little gothy. And also she's queer. <sighs> I mean, to me, it's okay. But here's the thing. So <laughs> she's queer in the books. Yes. If you remove that aspect from the movie, then you'd be having people complaining that it's by erasure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I, so I, I just mean, think I, that this is. Sorry. Sorry. Wait, I'm sorry. My okay sounded really like I win. <laughs> that, wasn't, uh... that wasn't how I meant it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I'm not I'm not suggesting that I didn't want Miriam in here. It's just it feels very oh and hey, she's bisexual. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah. well, then do something with it. And again, girl, there's no would. time. <laughs> I needed a three and a half hour cut of this motherfucking movie, apparently. Go watch that Swedish miniseries. Also, I do want a t shirt that says fuck you, you fucking fuck, because that looks great. Oh yeah. I love that. Uh, So anyway, they have a kind of meet cute, awkward moment where she obviously doesn't trust him because he's a man and he ends up sort of winning her over and she agrees to take the case because, of course, she already knows everything about him. And so she gets to work on some keyword searches. And I do have to give a very stupid shout out that we (laughs) see a Billy's pan pizza next to her as she's doing this web search and that was the one thing that i vividly remember from this fucking book trilogy is that they are always eating these godforsaken billy's pan pizzas throughout the oh. whole thing i don't remember that shit but okay <laughs> yeah like it, it, 
in in their research, they are always taking breaks so that they can go to the convenience store and get a Billy's pan pizza, and mm. it's like the only food they eat throughout the entire trilogy. <laughs> what do you think of their chemistry? I like it. It feels like an age gap, and sometimes that makes me a little uncomfortable. I can't remember I mean, how get... old they are in the books. He is a little bit older. They, I mean, they they address it in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he says, like, I mean, I think he even says something like when she's about to fuck him, right? About about how old he is. Like, I think that's his biggest thing. Where it's like, uh, no. Mm -hmm. I can't tell if it's me being prudish or if it's just so much of the sexual politics in this movie. Like everything to do with sex is often icky in this movie. So. I sometimes just feel like, oh, wouldn't they be better as friends? But I know that's not how it goes. Like, no, I mean, the, I, I, adapting the I, book. I get what you're saying, because even when I read the books, I was just kind of like, oh, this is kind of weird. It feels like it comes out of nowhere. Well, it does. But it, well, because it, it, it's like, why, why is she instigating this? But it's she's just a free spirit. Yeah, she she does what she wants to do. And she likes him enough to trust him and therefore to fuck him. Yeah. Uh, I confess, I mean, again, as you said earlier, I think Craig is fine in this movie. It's just, he's just kind of like, he's the less, much less interesting character. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is maybe why we like that second book, because it really is almost all her. Yeah. And that third book is all him. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out. Yeah. Shockingly enough, the gay men like strong, powerful women. <laughs> Um, but nevertheless, I, I never feel like Mikhail is a creep in this movie. And maybe you disagree. No, he he's just there. He's doing his thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. So when he comes back to the cottage, he sees that the cat is already inside, which is our clue that someone has been in the cottage in his absence. And that'll mm-hmm. be important later. She gets to work on all of these cold cases and she makes a bunch of progress. We see her speeding around on the motorcycle and talking to people and it all happens, as you said, very quickly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is sorry. This is when Mikhail gets sort of brought back on and Martin apologizes. And um, this is then when Lisbeth finally arrives on the island. Martin mistakes her for... Blumkiss's girlfriend and she says hey you should know that all of these numbers correspond to various locations and murdered women they're almost all Jewish yep the only one who isn't Jewish is Harriet I, I I know it's so silly in a movie that deals so heavily with Nazism but like I legitimately forgot these were all anti-semitic crimes I think again because it doesn't really get unpacked like we we get a lot of mention of the Nazism Mm. And then we get a brief mention when we get the explanation, like the killer motivation from Martin. But apart from that, it's really just, oh, these are girls. And then, oh, hey, they're Jewish. I wonder if maybe that's something that plays differently, though, in Sweden. Like if there's already like an understanding. Because I mean, again, like, mm-hmm. I confess, like I was never good at history. And so like, while I know how the Americans were during World War II, I don't know what it was like in Sweden right. during World War II, you know? Yeah, uh, in hindsight, that is something we could have looked up and did not, but... uh, It's okay. Go go to a history podcast. (laughs) That's our our new side venture. It's going to be history queers. (laughs) Recommending other podcasts. (laughs) Also that. It's it's just us saying, oh, somebody else is going to do it better. Go listen to that. (laughs) My 
God, we can't be jack of all trades. We can only be good at so many things. So yeah, we're branching out into music and history. That's the new direction <laughs> for this podcast. Oh my God. I'm going to do a Nine Inch Nails podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to call it Nin. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, yeah, they review each other's work in the morning, and then they discover that the cat has been killed. Mm-hmm. All of this kind of stuff just happens in short order. Blumkiss finds this woman who has the other photos, and he makes copies. Yes, it's <laughs> convenient <laughs> and good. A, he found her. B, <laughs> she has the... Which, okay, I get it. It's her honey. It's her honey, Of course I have the photos, but I'm like, bitch... <laughs> This is so, it's fine. I'm not even angry at it. I'm not like, oh, that's like a real plot contrivance. I'm just like, oh my God. It's it's just amusing, right? It is very amusing. Like, good, good. Thank God Mm -hmm. she didn't move away (laughs) in the 40 years that this picture was taken. Well, we definitely alighted over the fact that it does take him about four false starts to get to her. So it's like, I'm looking for this person. Oh, they're dead. Oh, I'm looking for this person. Well, they're in a home. (laughs) Okay, then. Uh, so there is one more interaction between Lisbeth and this guy, Nils. Yeah. And I think this, if people were angry at the way that I responded to the previous two scenes, they might point to this and say, oh, well, this is how you get a sense that she either has processed it or that she still feels empowered by it. Because, yeah, she straight up owns him and tells him, I'm still monitoring you. I'm still in control. Fuck you. Do better. Stop looking at tattoo removal websites. I do like that line. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I mean, I do think it's also a bit significant that it's after this scene that we see her putting up surveillance equipment around the cottage, and then that yeah. night is when they fuck. Okay, I, I liked what you said earlier about, like, I don't know if I'm being prudish or what. Mm-hmm. I, th- there is just, it's, I'm of two minds. She instigates this. She wants to have sex with him, and he kind of pushes back. But she's like, "Nope, we're gonna do it." Yeah, that's why I said consensual in air in quotes, quotation because yeah. he's also like he's been nicked by a gun shot because mm-hmm. that was what was happening on his side of the story while she was back in Stockholm. He got right. shot at, and she stitches him up, and he doesn't seem quite right. Like he's obviously very dazed. He's in the shower just spraying water on the gash for a bunch of time so i i i'm not gonna say that this I, is a sexual assault i'm not gonna say it's non-consensual i just think yeah, yeah. it's a little suspect and again this is more gratuitous than both the original swedish version and more so than the queer sex scene Oh, no, yeah, we get full um, frontal on her. She had to wear a Merkin, by the way. Right. But, uh, yeah, I, I do think, I mean, more so than the rape scenes, I think that these sex scenes, like this romance, this dalliance between them, mm-hmm. suffers the most from not having those sequels. Right. Yeah. Like, this could be removed, and it would be fine, I, yeah. in my opinion. Like, you could have them just be platonic co-workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if this was a one and done and we knew it from the start, you could easily remove it. And again, like, not to be weird about the age gap, it's just like, again, it, just, it, it is just kind of sudden and strange to me, but a little you bit. do you, Elizabeth. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, sex positivity, she wants sex, she gets it, good for her, but yeah, okay. <laughs> so... The next morning, she goes on the hunt for subsidiaries and suppliers. So she's going to spend most of the rest of the film up until the kind of extended denouement coda thing. Yeah. She's in here looking at records. And we basically... Okay, so we have a scene where Mikhail goes to Cecilia's father, the Nazi, 
Harold. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting line. We said we don't really know much about the history of Nazism in Sweden, but there is this line where he says that at least he's being more honest with who he is and the history of the country. So he doesn't shy away from the fact that he was a Nazi. He still got all of his propaganda out Mm -hmm. displayed proudly as opposed to what he suggests the rest of the country and the family is doing which is sweeping it under the cupboard nope sweeping it under the rug there we go yeah (laughs) tick for tack oh my god that's that's gonna be the fucking subtitle for this episode (laughs) i just can't i'm just imagining all your nearly 40 years of life saying tick for tack I say things only on this podcast sometimes because you realize you just say dumb things when you're being recorded. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, you can you can excuse yourself with that. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, that that's my story. I'm going to stick to it. Okay. Okay. So basically the byproduct of all of this is that Mikhail finds another piece of the puzzle which is a youngish Martin is in one of these photos. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the thing that proves to him that Martin was not where he was supposed to be at the time on the day of Harriet's disappearance. So this more or less all comes together. They realize it at the same time in their two distinct locations. So Elizabeth connects all of the deaths except for Harriet's and one other woman's to Gottfried, Gottfried. who is Martin and Harriet's father. Nazi father. Nazi father. Yeah. And Mikhail notices that oh hey okay uh martin wasn't here so that makes him a prime suspect in harriet's death so there we go we've got two killers so what does he do he decides to go to martin's house oh my god you can tell that he's trying to be the big man he breaks in he almost gets caught and then he does get caught because he just doesn't leave he goes back in the scene where he gets caught i had like the secondhand embarrassment for him where i was like dude you are fucked Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is so embarrassing he might as well be in somebody's backyard with the motion sensor light going off because 100 percent, yeah and skarsgård plays this entire scene i mean skarsgård doesn't get a lot to do in this Mm -mm. movie even his killer monologuing that he does later like it's it's done with such coolness that i it's so chilling But he plays it in two completely different ways, right? Because the Martin that we've seen the rest of the film is almost jovial. He's so helpful. He's very Mm -hmm. supportive. Like, you really think that he's on Blumkiss's side. And here, when he turns on the malice and the nefariousness he's he's very cold and creepy and calculating the line where he asks about one woman and he goes oh arena just another immigrant whore like woof that delivery i know i know it's rough i mean and this is just like my fascination with killers and stuff Mm -hmm. right and like that that's the problem you know because we we focus so much more on the killers than we do with the victims Mm -hmm. but watching him okay (laughs) like put this scene of daniel craig in this goddamn torture trap Mm -hmm. like just double feature that with his torture scene in casino royale right okay but but like i just love love watching Skarsgård just like talk to him about what he does why he does it Mm -hmm. watching the hope leave his victim's eyes like it's is the most sinister thing and again like this this is not the climax of the movie (laughs) well I think to a lot of people it actually is it's it's the action climax it's not the emotional climax Interesting. I'm I'm fascinated to then hear what you feel is the emotional climax. Okay. Oh, I mean it's it's Harriet's uh, re- reunion with Henrik. Okay, sure. I mean, 
whatever yeah (laughs) (laughs) it lands a little more softly this is more exciting but like the point of the story is solving this absolute quote-unquote murder yeah because that's the big twist here right is that we think we finally caught harriet's killer but it's the moment where mikhail says oh well you killed harriet and martin just goes off on him because it's not true he'll take responsibility for all of those other murders but he didn't kill harriet Yes. So we have this whole thing, right? Because we learn mm-hmm. that both Harriet and Martin yep. were molested by their father. Yep. And he doesn't he doesn't say it in as many words, but the exact line he says, he goes, I've never had a man in here before. Mm-hmm. And then he starts unzipping his pants. Yep. And he goes, I've never touched another man except our father. It was our duty, Harriet's and mine. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Uh, talking about a film that already has had one male rape in it, we now have a, uh, our main antagonist mm-hmm. who is revealed to have a history of child sexual abuse. Yeah, and, you know, we we haven't dabbled too, too much in true crime, but there is a historical precedent for boys who get molested who then grow up to become. Mm-hmm. Obviously not always the case, but... You know, some of the more well-documented serial killers had histories of child sexual abuse. So, well, and and, and that's what Skarsgård says. So he did not do any research into like what this type of killer would be like. He wasn't interested. And his exact quote is, you know, he says, "I know most of them were abused as children, mm-hmm. but that's not the only explanation as to why someone would be like this." Right. And of course, given what his history, I mean, he, again, Nazi father, abusive, sexual, and physical. Well, I guess sexual is physical, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like, again, do we want to know any more? Do we like? Do we want more backstory into Martin? Uh, no, he's evil. It's whatever it is. Yeah, because there's there's a perverse sadism to a lot of this, right? Like you you mentioned that he's got a videotape and he's got a contraption that he hoists people up. You know, he gets a lot of pleasure out of as newly asphyxiating Macau, well, also kind Ooh. of like stroking him with the knife and threatening to plunge it I into mean, his chest like this is a sexual act for him that's how that casino royale scene oh, is 100%. too yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> daniel craig just loves to get like queerly tortured uh, mm. that's now, the title uh, of my autobiography what <laughs> <laughs> um do you read martin as queer i think he's turned on by the prospect of being in control of this situation mm-hmm. i don't yeah. know if that then makes him queer because i don't think he wants to touch Mikkel in like a sexual yeah. way but i think he likes the idea of finally having a man that he can dominate it's a, well, yeah to me it's, it's something different right mm-hmm. like you've spent your whole life eating steak now you get some veal <laughs> yes <laughs> okay yes <laughs> in the mind of a killer man right i do want to say because we talked about fede alvarez off the top this also brought to mind don't breathe oh yeah 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 yeah. Very, I mean, yeah this torture i mean he's like hogtied but mm-hmm. hung up hanged yeah. up <laughs> hogtied hanged up yeah um yeah i don't read him as queer either i i view all of his sexual pleasure I, I actually wouldn't maybe even view him almost as asexual because to me his sexual pleasure is coming from it's killing these acts yeah, it, yeah it, it's not from like a, a physical or like interest in the body of the person they're with or yeah mind i guess and it, i think it was maybe a little different for his father because we definitely get confirmation that a lot of the pre-1960 victims were definitely raped and then murdered and it seems 
like it maybe is a little bit different for him because well, it, like he talks about oh i had her in a cage while you were upstairs at dinner the other day so oh i think God. it's more mind games and really taking pleasure in other people's pain because no because his his father he said oh my father would like you know strew the body parts around which i thought was really sloppy because it's a thing where it's like, oh serial killers want to get caught right. right if you want to be famous you have to get caught martin is not interested no. in that no, he doesn't want to get caught. No, not at all. He wants to keep doing what he's doing because that's what, how he gets his rocks off. Yeah. So sadly, this doesn't work out very well for Martin because no. <laughs> Lisbeth has managed to escape from that area where he thought he had her under surveillance and she ends up hitting him in the face with a golf club. Okay, one of my favorite moments in this movie is when he runs away and i think craig, she finally gets craig loose mm -hmm. but she goes may i kill him and he just goes yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are moments where the line delivery and i'm pretty sure it's intentional comedy like that is a very self-aware kind of knowing wink moment and it plays very well in an otherwise very dark and grim film i mean that's the thing <laughs> this this story that we have spent two plus hours talking about is so morbid, so grim, mm -hmm. filled with really reprehensible material, and people ate it up. Yeah. Like mainstream audiences ate well, mm -hmm. not this movie, but like the book. <laughs> <laughs> this tale in various forms, yes. I mean, it's just so and that's where David Fincher's line comes in. Yeah. I think people are perverts. Yeah, I still don't like the term because, again, that suggests that we're getting sexual pleasure out of it. I think that we are fascinated by the macabre. I mean, yeah, and this is kind of, uh, I guess maybe it's during, like, this really, this in, it rise in true crime, right? Mm-hmm. Sorry, true crime interest, not true crime happening. Yeah, yeah. And it's not like it was a new thing in the aughts, but we've seen yeah. an explosion in the back half of the decade where... With I podcasts. Think, well, I think people have realized it's not a shameful thing to say that you're fascinated by this kind of stuff. Like, to do otherwise is to sweep it under the rug. The rug, yeah. yeah. We all need to embrace Harold's, Harold's version of events, minus the Nazism. Yeah, don't be a Nazi. Yeah. So anyway, Nazi. car chase, car he chase, blow up. Yeah. Did, did you? Hey, I really wanted her to shoot that goddamn tank, though. I mean, I kind of thought that she would pop off a couple just anyway. <laughs> I wanted to kill him. Come on. Hon honestly, no. If I had like permission to go kill someone, I mean, granted, not from a police officer, but just from some random guy <laughs> named Mikhail. But like, I'm like, I want to go kill him, and if this tank robs me yeah. of that. <laughs> But I think it also keeps her from being a murderer, right? Which is harder to get on that side of as an audience. Yeah, sure. I mean, okay, I'm sorry. Show me the audience member that will be like, oh, man, she murdered that rapist pig. Um, hmm. <laughs> I'm not really on her side anymore. It didn't really feel earned if you asked me. <laughs> okay, cathartic. so now we have 20 more minutes. Yeah, oh, my God. This is the point where I thought, okay, well, I'm on to the fourth page of no, oh, Fucking hell. I do like this Harriet resolution. Like, Jolie Richardson did, does not get a lot to do in this movie, but I do like just the quiet mm -hmm. simplicity of her telling Mikhail, like, yeah. everything. And then, of course, we have the flashback that she did kill her father. Yeah. I, I'm interested. Did you like that we actually get to see that in flashback? I'm fine with it. Oh, also, um, but Joe, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Are you not on her side anymore because she <laughs> killed her father? <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. Burn in hell, Harriet. 
Um, no, I'm fine with it, honestly. I mean, honest, it's one of those things where like we've spent two plus hours hearing about this mystery, and now mm-hmm. we, like, we, we get it. And so I, I think it's... It is owed to the character to right. see this revenge. And okay. this is also, I mean, this is technically rape revenge. We yes. This is a rape revenge where we are not seeing the rape. Mm. And I think the part that crushes me the most is where you finally get to see her enact her revenge. And it is immediately undercut by oh, the appearance yeah. of Martin on the horizon leg. And she even says, you know, I, I got rid of one and just immediately replaced him with my brother. And she went to her mother and told her and her mother did nothing. It's um, hello. He got sent off to boarding school. What more oh do you God. want? I I I love I I really do like this movie a lot. <laughs> I think this is actually a subtle commentary on class as well, right? Like the family is presented as rich and well-to-do but also very intensely private and there's a lot of conversations about the corporation that the Wagner family is in charge of. So yeah. I think that it's I mean I'm not going to excuse the mother's behavior cuz that's abhorrent and like what the fuck lady you could have stopped all of this but i think her decision making was let's avoid embarrassment we'll send him off he'll be reformed and my daughter will be safe because he won't be here until the parade until the 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 fucking parade (laughs) yeah okay so we get resolution we get the reunion between henrik and anita slash harriet yep um And then we get this extended sequence where Wernerstrom comes back. Hey, everybody, remember the Wernerstrom controversy that opened this movie? (laughs) Still kind of here. So uh, Rooney Mara puts on a really bad blonde wig and she goes to a bunch of banks. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently she hated being in this 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 role, though. She was like, I hated being the oh, God, she has a name for this this alter ego of hers. Oh, I didn't write it down. Uh, it's okay. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. We, we just get her stealing two billion euros mm-hmm. from this dude, and bam, he gets uh, shot in Jamaica. Or the Cayman Islands or the Bahamas or something. Yeah, some place where he was hiding out because they had no extradition treaty, and he ends up getting killed in a gangland execution. <laughs> Three times in the head, man. Bam. Like, they were not fucking around. Yeah, I mean, all you really need to take away from this is that Mikhail's reputation and Millennium's reputation by proxy have both been saved and they're big heroes. And Lisbeth did it all for him because otherwise he wasn't going to get redemption. And then he casts her aside so he can keep fucking Erica. I mean, and the thing is, like her whole like it's almost like a like a short film version of like a of a Ocean's Eleven. Like she, she, it's a Steven Soderbergh short film that's inserted at the end of this David Fincher <laughs> film. <laughs> Indeed, yes. But yeah, it ends with her driving off on her own mm-hmm. because Mikhail chose Erica. Yeah, he did her wrong. So into the garbage with you, leather jacket. What do you think of this ending? Like as a standalone film, how does this work for you? Uh, I was definitely, I was going to say, I was definitely disappointed the first time I saw it yesterday. Yesterday? Uh, (laughs) No, I think it works fine. Actually, I think even if you know that they were setting up a sequel and this was really just, uh, okay, we're going to have to rebuild this friendship in the next film. I think it works in that regard, but I think it works as a standalone as well. Yeah, I think it honestly fits the, her her character. It like, really she does. She is kind yeah. of a loner. And it, it is sad for her because you can see that she did not want to be like in the movie this way. Right. But 
it's kind of like, you know, her, her whole life has been one instance of this after another. So it's just a repeat even after this huge win she had. Yeah, men disappointing her. Yeah, and also she's rich as fuck now. Oh, well, no, because it's not like she kept that money. They used that to prove that Werner Strum was bad. She didn't no, keep it, she did kept, she? No, she kept, she kept a good chunk of it. <laughs> okay, because I thought she only used the amount that she needed and then she repaid how much she borrowed. No, I'm I'm just misreading this, aren't I? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it says, Salander in disguise travels to Switzerland. Oh my God, Switzerland. Switzerland. And removes 2 billion euros from his secret accounts. Yeah, no, no, she took that money. Fair enough. Good for her then. You know what? Good for her. Because she makes a uh, he makes a re- a remark about like something and she's like oh no I- I'm covered I got the money like before they part ways okay see I thought that it was just because she had her own funds back because of all of the backstory with her but yes that that definitely makes more sense <laughs> so she has a happy ending if you think money buys happiness ah. which I do there you go. <laughs> so that is the girl with the dragon tattoo joe final thoughts oh man let's keep this quick i like this movie i would have enjoyed seeing a sequel to it we didn't really talk about the aesthetics but i think the coolness of it like the way fincher shoots it with his cinematographer it's not a welcoming film but i think it perfectly captures what the tone is and uh you know i think it's great for a little pre-christmas kind of vibe like yeah, get dirty, get sad. I, I am still surprised that this is a story that took the world by storm. I mean, like, I right. don't think I had seen a book be this popular since, I, for adults, I guess, mm-hmm. since, like, Da Vinci Code, which, I mean, oh, yeah. granted, was, like, you know, six years earlier. <laughs> and <laughs> but, honestly, a piece of shit. Uh, yes, yeah. It's, I mean, it is a page turner, but God, I tried to read some of those sequels, and oh my God, they are, I just, I didn't like them. I like chapters that are more than three pages long. Oh, but that makes it a page turn. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I'm shocked that this was the global hit that it was. That I'm happy it was because I do like I, I like the story. Mm-hmm. I do want to go back and revisit those Swedish films, but as for this film on its own, like I mean, it's Fincher. Like he, he is a masterful director, mm-hmm. and this works for me. And uh, you know, at least Mara always has this to be whenever people say she's a bad actress. There you go. So. Hey, old us who accused her of being snoozy, Mara, <laughs> take that. Have you seen Side Effects, the Steven Soderbergh movie with her in it? I have not, but I feel like we've talked about that before. Yeah. Okay, so I, I don't want to spoil anything because it's definitely a movie where it's like there's twists and turns, but it's I think it's Channing Tatum. It's Catherine Zeta-Jones. Mm. Really good movie. I was like, I didn't really care because Soderbergh is like really hit or miss for me, but like I really liked that movie. Okay. So, is it a heist film where she puts on a blonde wig and steals two billion euros? She definitely might wear a wig or two, but it's not a heist film. Honestly, I don't. Dude, I don't even care. I was making a joke. (laughs) We're two hours and twenty minutes. Wrap it up. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, well, so that, that, yeah, that's that. So before we announce what we're covering next week, everyone, of course, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers. Join our Horror Queers Facebook group to hang out with other listeners. Find us on Letterboxd, keep track of all the films we've covered, and go to our YouTube channel to watch our videos of Micro Queers and Chucky coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. We haven't had a review in like a month, so please go, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We do love, if they're five stars, though. If they're below that, don't, don't do it. Well, or or just do it so that you can combat that person who said that 
I was like white racist. <laughs> yeah, no, you were racist. I was sometimes more understandable, yeah. but I'm still not good. Right. Okay, <laughs> good, good clarification. There you go. Um, if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. If you go subscribe, we will have episodes this month uh, dropping on Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, uh, Silent Night, the new Kira Knightley horror comedy type doomsday thing. Mm-hmm. We'll have an episode on this year's initiation, a film from earlier this year that um, we don't think got the respect it deserved. Right. An audio commentary on Gremlins, just in time for Christmas. And, of course, a minisode on trailers that are way better than the movies they're advertising. Hmm. But, Joe. Yes. I'm so excited for next week because (laughs) what are we covering? So we had to wait an extra year because everyone and their fucking mother did this on a podcast last year. So (laughs) it is our time to cover... Batman Returns. Oh, oh my God. I words cannot describe. Right? I this is like a top ten film for me. <laughs> the best Batman movie ever made. Can't want I it is best Batman film for me as well. So everyone, until next week, we can cross out the girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh boy. Yes. And cross out horror queers. Horror queers.